get here and want a creative job. There are hundreds of jobs that will pay you to think, solve, make, create and design. In How Did I Get Here, I speak to entrepreneurs, leaders, trendsetters and trailblazers in some of the world's most desirable jobs and ask them, how did you get here? Today I'm speaking to Dave Bonaguidi. Dave Bonaguidi is the founder of Unlimited Inc, a company that offers creative business solutions and investment to startup businesses. Dave's been working in the advertising industry for over 30 years. He founded St. Luke's, which was the world's first advertising agency cooperative, and is also responsible for founding Four Creative, Channel 4's in-house powerhouse creative communications agency. He's since founded the advertising agency Karmarama and been chief creative officer of Crispin Porter and Bogusky London. In 2003, he created the iconic Mate T-Not war poster for the anti-war march, and the poster now hangs in the Trento Museum of Modern Art and also forms part of the collection at the V&A. Dave recently took a year-long hiatus from Adland in which he enrolled himself on a screen pinching course, giving him a new skill to bring to life all of the ideas that constantly bounce around his head. And the result is that Dave is now an artist whose work is available to purchase at places like Jealous Gallery and Print Club London. Dave is a household name and a powerful voice in the creative industry, pushing positive agendas such as diversity and education. He's a prolific maker and creator and has found several ways to earn a living doing so. It's an absolute privilege meeting Dave. He's a, he's a pretty big name in the industry uh, and everyone tells me just an absolutely lovely guy. So um, without further ado, I hope you enjoy my interview with Dave Bonaguidi. Dave, I think that is the longest <laughs> intro I've ever done. <laughs> Make a strong cup of coffee or tea. So yeah, I think the length of the intro hopefully will reflect what's going to be. Um, Let's hope so. I don't want to let anybody chat. down. Bloody hell! Too much pressure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, let's start off with some nice light stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't like to presume that people listening know anything about advertising or marketing or creativity. Yeah. So, tell me what you do for a living in your own words. Right. Um, I am working uh, in my new company, which is called Unlimited Inc. Uh, set it up in uh, July of this year with my friend and colleague Arjun Singh. And um, it's basically, we, we want to try and explore the space between and around uh, ad agencies and consultancies. I think that the ad agency model is a little bit busted, and a little bit old, very, very old fashioned. And the consultant model is just a little bit boring. And I think that where they overlap, there's some really interesting stuff to be done. And so I think that um, genuinely, I mean, go, going back to the question, which is what I should have done, I like to solve, you know, both of us like to solve uh, the problems that keep our clients awake at night. And I would say from experience, 80% of those problems aren't advertising related. They might be, they're going to be business related. And I think that one of the things that we're lucky at in advertising is that we can apply our strengths in creative problem solving in different ways. And I think when you apply those ways of working to solve their business problems, it just takes you into a much more interesting place. So we are, we call ourselves creative venturists. Sounds really fucking wanky. I can't work out if there's a better way of saying it. I'm sure there is. But it's basically solving the things that keep them awake at night. And it's weird, when we talk to our clients, any client, and we say, you know, what your, what's your advertising problem? They give you a five-word answer. Yeah, I need, I need a, a lot more awareness, I haven't got any money. 
Whereas when you say, what's the thing that keeps you awake at night, suddenly you end up with this almost this, this sort of uh, psychotherapy session where they just download everything. And they go, well, I've got this, I've got that, I've got this, I've got that. <clears throat> and I think when you apply the way that we work to those problems, you always take you somewhere really interesting. Also, I think it's, it's about building a decent relationship with your client. And if you're genuinely interested in their business and what keeps them awake at night, they'll want to be your partners. If it's just, I just want to do TV ads. Yeah. It's a very superficial relationship. Okay. You mentioned, so long-winded, sorry. that was that's nope. what I kind of do. So you mentioned you think that the, the ad agency model is a bit outdated. Do you think that... You know, I was, I'm being polite. I think it's completely outdated. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's archaic. It's like steam engines. And is that, is, you, you know, is that what you think you're doing differently at Unlimited, that you're just trying to get as close to their business and their, their actual business problems rather than their, you know, Well, I'm genuinely interested in, I, I, I see myself absolutely as a service. Um, I think that we all are. Uh, you know, our job is to sit there and help our clients win. And, you know, in, in the, the speed the world is moving and changing, we should be on that and we should be thinking about it. But the reason I sort of say that advertising is so outdated is because it's still flapping on about things that were relevant 30, 40, 50 years ago and I just don't think it's like that anymore um, what's, what's relevant do you think now to, to businesses? well it's just you know, how do you, how do you maintain that distance between your, the business you're working for and the nearest competitor and it's like you, know, you have to think in a different way you have to be really really quick you have to be smart you have to be uh, instinctive you also have to be really collaborative. You have to do all the things that agencies sit there talking about, but they never do. You know, agencies are very, very too slow. The business has moved so quick, and the business externally moves so fast in such a short space of time compared to anything that we've ever experienced. But ad agencies are still running on a model that's like 60 years old. And, you know, like when we were talking earlier about the guys at Us Too, you look at the way that they apply themselves to solve problems just completely free, much, much looser. And I, personally, I find that much more stimulating because the problems you're going to be solving aren't the same thing every time. In advertising, it's just become, we are a production unit, a production company. You get told what to do, by, by when, and for how much money. Um, and you're just colouring in. And so there's no, there's no kind of, there's, there's no opportunity for you to use your creative skill in any way at all. And that's why the ad agency model has become even more corrupted because it, it finds joy in things like craft, which is kind of all right. But all the award stuff, I mean, it's just, it's all about who's the director you're working with, who's the editor, oh, the editor I work with, he just shot something for somebody else. I mean, it's, it's just all a bit flimsy. Whereas, I don't know, I, I just find I get a, a real kick out of working with clients and helping their business succeed. Irrelevant of whether you, whether it's an ad or something else. I mean, it could be anything. And I don't think enough people think like that. But I'd say that. And that's, I'm being selfish because that's the way I like to think. But I think it would genuinely make the business a bit more interesting. But is that what the future looks like to you? An ideal future is is, is being as close to the client as possible. And absolutely, absolutely. And it's like, uh, and, and the thing, the, the the big decision that we made at Unlimited was to not chase after all the ad ad clients. Um, because everybody else is doing that. You've got two big groups now, you know, publicists and WPP, who are like, you know, Godzilla meets King Kong, fighting over the universe for who can get, who can make the deal that's going to give them the biggest piece of business. Um, and I think as a result, they're all everybody's chasing the same thing. So when people set up an, an agency now, is they're looking for a really big client who 
does great work and spends a lot of money. Now, there aren't that many of those, and so the competition becomes so intense. I remember years ago, you know, when you were a small agency, you pitched against other small agencies for small bits of business. Whereas I remember at Kamarama, when we were like four or five, I remember pitching against, for, pitching for a piece of business once, and we were pitching against Saatchi, and I was like, hold on a second, they're like a fucking, you know, global agency, what they do? This thing's worth like 20 grand a year, nothing. Everybody's eating the same bit of pie now. And the thing that we made a decision about with Unlimited was just to go, instead of chasing Moby Dick, why don't we flip it around the other way and, and go and talk to, there's so many new startups, there's so many new businesses that are set up by people who are still alive. You know, most of the clients that we worked on in advertising historically were set up in the 60s, 70s and 80s and the founders are no longer part of the, part of the equation. And so they're in the hands of marketeers who aren't as brave and their ambition is how do I increase sales by 1% or 2% so I get my summer bonus. Whereas when you're dealing with startups and people who are genuinely interested in changing the business world, they want to take on everything, they want to win. And their ambition is completely different. And so we found that when we started talking to startups with you know, Series 1, Series 2 funding, They've got sums of money. They don't have the same. They don't have the, the the amount of money needed to go to an ad agency. You know, they need 50, 60 grand a month just to make it, just to pay for everything they're not using. Because when you're working with the startup, they might have, they might turn around and go, we got 40 grand, we got 20 grand, we got 10 grand. But you, if you can turn that around in a week or two weeks, quite a lot of money. And so we've just gone. Everyone else is chasing, is going up one street and following it, thinking that that's the solution. Whereas we've just flipped it the other way around, and it's. Um, it also enables us just to work with people who really care about their business, but also it enables us to have a real impact on their business. That you can cut it different ways. So we have equity in businesses. Um, it allows us to invest in businesses as well. I'm not interested in selling unlimited. I don't think we ever want to do that. But if a client comes to us and say, I really want to sell my business, can you help me make it better? Well, yeah, I'll help you do that. Give us some equity and we'll help you do it. Yeah, so you've got, you just have a different relationship. Is it? Can you? You know, I know sometimes you can't talk about things you're doing, but could you tell us about some stuff you're working on at the moment, or what you did at work yesterday, for example? Well, interestingly, I mean, our first first client was um, a mobile bank uh, called Moniz, um, and it's just it's a really really fascinating story. I don't know if you've ever heard of a bloke called A.P. Giannini, who is this uh, uh, American Italian born in San Francisco who uh, when the big immigrant rush happened at the turn of the century in 1900s, 1920s he, a lot of people didn't want to lend any money to the immigrants uh, because they thought they, were, they weren't good people and um, he was first generation American his parents were Italian and he, th he thought well you know, there's a lot of Italians here I speak Italian maybe I should you know I'll, I'll set up I'll, I'll make my bank a welcome haven for these people they need help you know they're coming over with nothing um, and so he started putting signs up in the window saying we speak Italian and that became the Bank of Italy and lots of people he was he said we'll lend money to Italians or to immigrants because they have more to lose so he trusted them more which is an interesting flip on the theory that most of us have these days um, and I remember when I talked to the guy who introduced us to Moneys, a guy called Marcus, I was fascinated. I thought, fucking hell, this is a great story. There's a really good story at the heart of this. I didn't know, but Bank of Italy then became Bank of America. 
So if you think of a nation that is built on the immigrant on the immigrant work ethic, it's the States. And um, Moneys is a very similar story. As a guy who I don't know if you've ever had your, have you ever done your credit check. Yeah, not long ago actually. Have you ever yeah. tried to get a new phone or anything like that? I mean, yeah. it's like fucking man, it's difficult. Yeah. When I left Kamarama, I tried to get a new phone or try to get a phone in my name. And they went, oh, you've got you've got no credit history, and I'm like. What do you mean? And they said, well, you've got no credit history. Have you, have you got credit cards? I went, I don't like credit cards. I do everything, either cash or, or debit. Why would I want to borrow money off somebody else and then pay it back at extortionate rates? I'm a dirty immigrant. <laughs> and, <laughs> I remember I got... A, it's sad, isn't it? But I got a credit card literally just to get my credit rate yeah. up so I could borrow up some money. Like, well, this guy said, oh, I said, all insane. I want is a phone. And he said, well, you, you have to get a... He said, this is, he talked to me like I was a child. He went, what you need to do is get a credit card or two and buy a sofa. I went, what's that? What? <laughs> I don't want to buy a sofa. I've already got one. I don't want to buy another one. Why would I want... Buy and he says, and then what you... Well, because he said, you need to buy something for more than two grand. Right. That then means you pay it back. I'm like, so fucking hell. I've got to sit there and spend a load of money that I don't want to spend just so I can have a good credit rating. So I said, you're in a situation now where... What... what crazy world that we created where our ambition is to put people into debt to make them good citizens it's madness and this guy the guy who set up bunnies really interesting character he's from Estonia came over couldn't get a bank account you know have you ever heard of that there's, just, there's the, the triangle of death you need a job you need a house and you need a bank account and if you can't get you, you, to get two of those you need to have one of them and Imagine you come over from a foreign country. You're not going to get a job unless you've got a bank account. You're not going to get a bank account. It's impossible. And you're not going to get a house unless you can get one of those. So it's, it's just... It, to survive, it's impossible. And when we spoke to this guy, Norris Koppel, who's the founder, he told us his story, and it was just like, you know, he came over, he's from Estonia, <clears throat> couldn't get a bank account, so decided to set up his own bank. And he kind of go, well, good for you. Yeah. And interestingly, coming into a world right now which is all about closing down borders and stopping people and Brexit and all of that kind of stuff where all we're trying to do is break everything up and stop it from working. His thing is, no, no, it's the opposite. It's about freedom of movement. If you're nomadic, and they use a lot of phrases, I think, that the, you know, the media uses a lot of phrases, you know, refugees, nomads, um, you know people on the move are deemed to be less interesting or less desirable. Whereas if you think about the world we live in, you know, where are you from originally? Bristol. Well, you know, all right, Bristol to London. Yeah. It's not a huge gap, but Bristol to Ireland, Bristol to France could easily happen. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where I think everybody has a choice to go and live and work wherever they want. And brands should make that possible whereas all we're doing is we're making it really really hard and almost impossible for people to do that and personally I, I found the story really fascinating because both my parents are immigrants so, you know they came over in the 50s and 60s and any help that we can be to try and secure one angle of that triangle of death I, I find really powerful and you know I'm also very lucky that I sit opposite Norris so when we're working on stuff you can sit there and go what about that and he goes, no, or yeah, or how much is that going to cost? And it's instantaneous. Whereas, you know, in previous relationships with other clients, you're dealing with a marketing manager who doesn't, who's worried about what their per, the person above them is going to think, who's worried about what the person above them is going to think. 
So it's a, it's a horrible chain that just doesn't function properly. So you're physically sharing a, an office space? Yeah, so yeah. We, we did a deal with them. They put, they've given us some equity. Uh, they pay us uh, a day rate, but reduced day rate. And then we said, well, can we have desk space as well? And they went, yeah. So we're, in, we're down on Old Street in a place called Runway East, which is just one of these great big you know, sharing offices. And we, we've got two desks there, and we sit in front of them. And it's, it's, it's the most invigorating thing I've done because you're, you're, you've got skin in the game. You're in their business. And you know, we're working with 30 people or 40 people, growing very quick. And, um, but he's got a big plan. He's, got a mission. he's on a mission. You know, he wants to change the world. He wants to make the world a better place for people like him. And I kind of go, well, I'd love to be part of that. The, the physical sh- actually of sharing of a space must really help with the work as well. Well, it just happens instantaneously. There's no, there's no miscommunication or kind of uh, old school. Oh, we're the client. You're the agency. You've got a design company, and we all have to kind of meet up once a week. Well, we're in the we're in the room with him. Yeah. Um, I just find it much easier. It just seems to make common sense. I mean, who knows what will happen if if we grow, if we become ten people, fifteen people, we'd have to do something different. But at the moment, it works very well. I mean, there's two of us, and um, and so we just. We're in there. We made a decision to sort of, you know, to go there. It also helps us, both of us being immigrant spawn, is like try and get stuff as cheap as possible. Yeah. <laughs> and when it's, when it, if you can, if you can get a desk, two desks off them, well, that's great. I mean, it helps us out. You know, the one, the one thing we need to do is work out how we can help ourselves succeed and saving on rent, yeah. but also being part of. And that sounds a little bit cynical, and it is. But you know the, the main thing is to, to be in with a client who really, really wants to transform or make the world a more interesting, better place for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I haven't felt like that since I worked on you know, IKEA. When we launched IKEA all those years ago, you know, working on IKEA, you're not working for a furniture store, you're working for a political movement. It's about helping millions of people have nice stuff for not much money, which is way, way, way more powerful than just by our ship. Yeah. Very true. I think the timing's spot on as well. Yeah, it's well, it's like, fascinating. I mean, There's going to be more of those. Yeah, many, yeah. Many, many totally, more that totally, pop up. It's never totally. been easier, I don't think, to do your own thing now because you can Yeah. You can do it via Kickstarter or you can, if you've heard of Eyes at all, or um, yeah, yeah. Squared, like yeah. these little payment terminals, yeah. but they give you business loans and things. And more and more of them will like, crop up, I think. Like, I went to a talk by um, the founder of Rafa, <clears throat> yeah. which is... Yeah, Good story, isn't it? dominating that market now and that was basically he was a, just a passionate cyclist who thought that cycling yeah. clothing well I remember shit. when he was based in, I know I know one of the other guys Tim who, who worked he's one of the partners there but I used, to, I used to cycle when I was thin and um, I remember when they had their little place down in um, in Kentish town but they used to sell a lot of stuff in, in uh, uh, Velarusian which was a shop in uh, Great Portland Street and you could just tell that place was going to go mad. But, you know, the cyclist, he did it because he's passionate about it and, he, and he's done it right and he's done it the way that he wanted to do. There's millions of other brands out there that just go, we're just going to be a Me Too brand. Yeah. And we're just going to do it our way. We're just going to do what everybody else is doing. And we'll, you'll, you, know, you can still make a successful business, but it's, there's no soul in it. And I think for me, I think there has to be a story at the heart of it, some value, some passion about why you're doing it and the, and what is your fucking mission not just because I want to make a lot of money yeah 
which is what too many people do. Is there a, um, a book or books that you've gifted, given away a lot to people? So you read it and it was so good, you sort of just gave it to someone and... No. No. no, I'm not really booky. I don't. I can't. I, I don't read. I literally when I go on holiday, I read. But it's because I've got nothing else to do. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. I think the book that I've given to more people is probably. I went. I used to go to a shop called Zwemmer on um, Charing Cross Road. It was one of the best art bookshops, and they had. I sounds like such a tight ass, but they used to have, they used to have these two boxes of um, old books or books that they couldn't sell and I went in there once and they had three copies of uh, a brilliant book called The American Midwest by um, Richard Avedon I don't know if you've ever seen it but he went around and took pictures of just people in the Midwest obviously but they're amazing amazing pictures and I bought three copies of it and I gave it I gave it to people I liked um, but I think that's the only book I've ever given away if I read anything if I read anything on holiday I'll just leave it where I'm at I'll put it in the bin yeah. On the beach. A to Z is quite a useful book I found in the past. <laughs> but now it's an app on your phone, you know. It's, yeah. uh, it's, uh... Very true. Um, so tell me a bit about where you grew up and your sort of first real experience with the creative industry when you saw something and thought, I'd quite like to do that, I think. Yeah, so I grew up in, uh, in London. Born in Paddington, my dad had a restaurant in uh, Fulham and Chelsea. And um, but I mean, I think like every every kid in those days, uh, the, the advertising had a kind of cultural currency. I remember we used to sort of, you know, Smash Martians were a big thing. But the, the, the ad that I remember seeing, I don't ever remember thinking at the time, oh, I'd really like to do stuff like that. But we used to play act. Whenever we saw a funny ad, you would sit there and play act it in the playground. And the one that I loved was the um, the Crest of Bear. That's worth looking at. There's a, and, it, and I remember when I when I read about this recently, it absolutely killed me because there's a famous ad where he takes a he, where he takes a drink, and it's just this animated bear, but he then goes through this kind of funny uh, dance where he starts you know shaking and making all these funny noises. And I remember I, I remember we used to fucking do that every time that that ad came on, we'd reenact it. And um, literally years later, I was watching Easy Rider, and there's a bit where Jack Nicholson plays this mental bloke who sits on the back of the bike on the journey. And he, he did exactly that. He drank some whiskey and then did this... Right. And went into this sort of chicken sound effect about how good the taste was. And I remember when I saw that, I went, fuck. That's where they got the bloody idea from for the Crest of Bear. And it killed me because... When I saw the Crest of Bear stuff originally, I had it in, you know, it was sitting in my heart as something I just thought, wow, this is an amazing piece of creativity. And then, they, then I realised they just nicked it from the film, which I thought was really shit. And I think that's one of the things that sort of sits with me is like, how do you try and use your creativity to some standard so that you can try and do something a little bit original? Stealing isn't that clever. But I do remember being influenced quite heavily by that kind of stuff when I was at school. Um, I think it was only when I went into, when I went to my, I worked in my old man's restaurant. I used to see a lot of people coming in, very glamorous people having lunch. And I remember asking him, you know, like, what do these people do? They just sort of seem to have lunch all day. And he, he said, oh, they work in advertising. And they worked at Low House Bank and all the big agencies in Knightsbridge. And I was like, oh, right, that sounds quite good. 
and he'd already said I don't want you to work in, in the restaurant game that's my business I want you to have your own thing and, uh, and so I just and luckily because he knew lots of people in the business it made it very easy for me to sort of you know, send him a letter back in the days of letters you know you eat and my dad you know my dad can, I, can you come and look at my portfolio and I, I went to art college because I was I couldn't do anything else I could draw and make stuff I went to art college, did graphics, and, and then just through complete and utter fucking moments of incredible luck, you know, meeting people, going off doing a course, re-meeting people, staying in contact with people, doing stuff, I just, you know, luckily I managed to get a job. And, um, so there was no kind of, it was a lot of, just a huge amount of fortune. Could have been anything. And so, talk me, talk me from, Sending those letters to kind of land in your first full-time job, what was that sort of journey and more specifically, what did you do? Why did you get a job that someone else didn't get? Well, it was, it was, and it happened remarkably quickly, I have to say. I mean, I think at the time I remember thinking, fucking hell, it's taken two weeks. You know, that's forever. It was like when you're 18, 19, two weeks is like a lifetime. Um, I had done something at college where I did a, I did a campaign. I used to love the work of... Um, Edward Mybridge, who was a photographer, I don't even know about him, but he's an interesting photographer. He talked about taking anal to the next level, but he, um, well, not taking anal to the next level. <laughs> he, he, was, he's, he is very anal. Uh, he sort of started this whole photographic process on the back of a bet, because he had a bet with a mate of his that when a horse runs, at some stage, all four of its feet are off the ground. And his mate went, no, he's always got one foot on the ground. So he then went and set up this huge um, a whole bunch of cameras down this long strip and then he got the horse to run down it and then took all these pictures and he went ah oh, look and in picture five the horse has got all four of his feet off the ground and then he went oh I wonder if I did a man walking or did a woman walking and then a man walking down the stairs and then he just went completely mad and did absolutely everything so a bloke with one leg shorter than the other walking up the stairs falling down the stairs putting his trousers on and he just studied human movement or move at every movement and I've, I've had one of these books that I nicked from college and there's an amazing bit in one of them where they had uh, a gymnast and it was this bloke kind of going through all these different motions and they're almost like a stop frame so you can sort of stick them all together and they would move and um, and at the time stretch jeans were really popular believe that and so I just got these black and white pictures and just coloured the legs in blue and then just got my little cassette recorder and just put, cut together a track that just sort of got the drum beat from one thing and it was all really hokey and I went in to see somebody at um, a guy called Nigel Rose and a woman called Judy I can't remember her second name and they were working at CDP and I went to go and see them one day and they went oh this is really interesting for Wrangler and I, it was, I just did it for Wrangler and they, they said oh Wrangler's one of our clients and then they presented it to the client and they said they were going to make it and I got all overexcited and above myself and then it never happened in the end but they, they said, oh, we should put you in contact with this other young creative guy who, who's looking. A guy called Steve Girdlestone, he was my first partner and he happened to live in a house with this bunch of blokes who were all working for Dave Trot and GGT at the time was probably the best agency in the world and it was a sensational agency and they were all, all these guys lived in one house. And these mad bunch of Geordies and Steve 
was hugely influenced by that and he had an amazing portfolio and I just you know literally Judy and Nigel just said oh, go meet this guy and I met him and we just said right we need to get a job quickly and so we just got my book that was very visual his book that was very word heavy but really good and we put that together and, and then sort of did some stuff together a couple of jobs together a couple of campaigns together and then we got a job very quickly those campaigns while you were on placements we didn't do placements actually in those days I mean literally I, I, we just did interviews you just go around and see people and um, I went to go and see you know a lot of people that my dad knew would put us in contact and then once we got our book together I think it made us more of a, a viable thing because I think in those days and still still pretty much the case now you know, if you're an art director and copywriter, it does make your life a lot, a lot easier to get a job because we still go, it's still that old-fashioned model of, like, we need two of you. Yeah. Whereas, I think it just feels a bit archaic. I mean, to be honest, now we hire single smart people and you team them up with people. But in those days, we were a little bit more, oh, no, we're, we're, we're a unit, and that's yeah. how we work. He does words, I do pictures, which is a bit basic. But um, I think the minute we got teamed up together, because Steve had seen lots of people and was very connected with the GGT guys, they were very helpful in helping us out, sending us to various places. I had my contacts, and when we came together, it just it just worked, and so we got a job really really quickly at TBWA. Um, but it was literally, I think, from teaming up to actually getting work, I think it was probably about three four weeks, which is unheard of now. Yeah, because you'd have to go, you'd have, you know, you'd, you'd have to go in and do three-month placement and yeah. but the, the, the placements didn't really happen in those days I think people just you know because you, you were paying I mean when we got a job at TBWA we were being paid four grand a year four grand is like it's nothing and I think you were just you were just part of a big machine you were like a tiny little speck of dust on a tooth on a cog and they could just take a chance you know you just get you in if it didn't work get rid of you and there was, there was no there was no I didn't really feel like there was any employment law or anything like that. I mean, it was just like you went in there, and if you fucked up, you got fired, and if you did all right, you stayed, and if you if you if you stayed and then fucked up, you got fired. So it was just a kind of it was literally job by job, yeah, um, a sort of survival game. But there was no risk in those days. People were much more able to sort of just oh, I like you, let's take a punt. Yeah, and you got to eat the agency toast. Yeah, you, you rinse that. Yeah, I mean, when, yeah. I, when we worked at um, WCRS, I remember we got made redundant at TBWA, and uh, we had to take a pay cut, and it happened at Christmas, happened in November, we got made made redundant, and we went to go and see some people, and, and we, we'd only been at TBWA for a year, and, you know, and we were right at the bottom of the pecking order, and I remember when we went to WCRS, which was a very different agency at the time, we needed a job, and... Similarly to what we were talking about earlier, my, my, my theory is, you know, try and get a job in a place that you, you, you'd love to work in, but more importantly, get a job where you can learn and become better at, you, at what you do and you sort out your own personality and your own vibe. And sometimes you have to work somewhere that might not sit on your radar. Uh, I've got this really odd theory that, this is going to sound a bit crass, but you always get laid at the party you don't want to go to. Right. You know, when you're sitting there on a Friday night going, oh, Jesus, do I really want to go? And then you go there and you have a great time. It's because your expectation is lower, maybe. Or maybe it's just the way, you know, fate is going to yeah. surprise you and make it a bit more interesting. Um, yeah, I, I always, I've got a similar one about, it's sort of the flip of that, but have you ever sort of been out on an evening out and you have a really, really great time and then you get home and you've got like a massive spot on your face and you're like, oh! 
If I'd known. Do you know what I mean? If, if you'd I'd known, known, I'd never have gone out. You wouldn't have gone out and you wouldn't have had a good time. time and you yeah, felt yeah. really self-conscious, but you actually go out and have an amazing time just because you don't know. Because you've been, been, yeah, because you've not, but you maybe, I don't know, maybe thinking about other stuff. I mean, it's interesting, but it's exactly that. And I think sometimes when you let all of your preconceptions down and you just sort of go, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. Just try it. And we went to WCRS and uh, we took a pay cut. And I remember I was working for Steve Henry and Axel Childercott, who we were in their group, and they, they, they were just about to set up Hal Henry, and that's all, you know, where we went after that. But I remember, you know, I had a, a one-bedroom flat in the Elephant Castle. I was earning, I think I was earning like six grand a year, and I've, I've got a mortgage because my dad said, no, you never rent. If you're renting, you're just giving somebody else money. Yeah. So get a mortgage. But in those days, you couldn't get a mortgage. You know, six grand was going to get you anything. But I bought a flat in the Elephant for about 30 grand. And I lied about... It was so easy to get a mortgage. I lied. Just got a, fake, a letter. Faked it with a letterhead. And just said, oh, yeah, Dave Bonnie, he, he earns 16, 16 grand a year. Oh, God. And, uh, and I went up to Steve Henry and said, can you just sign this? And he went, what is it? And I said, it's a, it's a mortgage. It's just a letter saying that I earn 16 grand. And he went, but you only earn six. And I said, yeah, but next year, if I play my cards right, I'll be earning 10. And the following year, I'll be earning 14. If, 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 you know. And he Fancy. signed it. He signed it. <laughs> no, but it was, it was a kind of a little bit of a hustle. But you yeah. sort of go, I mean, in those days, they'd give you money for anything. Yeah. And, um, but it was a little bit of that hustle that you just had to play it and just try and make it work. And I suppose, in a way, that's kind of one of the things I really love about the money's thing is that you're dealing with people who feel exactly the same, is that they're trying to survive. It's not, it's not thrive. You're trying to survive, which is a really, really interesting human response. And um, I don't know, maybe because I've been through that, because my parents have been through that. And, you know, your parents and your gen- generations back, their lives are like that all the time. I and mean, we're really lucky these days that we have shelter and a job and we have those first world problems of like, mm, where do I get my quinoa from? <laughs> you know, do I go to Waitrose or do I go to Lidl? Because Lidl have actually got quite a good range that's very reasonable. You know, we're allowed to make those decisions because somebody's done that hard work for us. Whereas... You know, I think you go back two generations in either of our families, it would be very different. Yeah, I think so. Um, just to hop back to something you were saying a minute ago. So, the, the, the model of the creative team, the art director, the copywriter, are obviously um, born out of the time when the industry was make, making a lot more print, making a lot more yeah. film. Do you think that's going to dissolve slightly? I mean, it's a, I think it's it has come dissolved. Up with I think it has dissolved. Yeah, I think it's it's sort of dissolved. I mean, it, it depends because I think there are still some very traditional ad agencies that, you know, I think if you work in an agency that's quite big, they will have the creative floor. Yeah, they'll have the planning floor. And I remember when I worked at JWT, you'd, you'd have to creators would have to give permission for people to come onto the floor like it was some like a nightclub. Yeah. You know, like, what the fuck is all that about? I mean, now, you know, you go to most big agencies, it would be, I mean, it's all about open, you know, open plan, hot desking. Yeah. I mean, they're all buzzwords that we love to spank out. Um, I think, traditionally, though, you know, the creative discipline is still very much art director, copywriter in a lot of places. Whereas when you go to interesting creative companies, I mean, it's just like, oh, you're smart. I mean, people nowadays are multifaceted. I think in the old days, you would go, I write copy, and if you ask me to do anything else, I'll melt. Yeah. I can do pictures, but I, if you ask me to write a word, I'll cry. Yeah. Whereas now you go, well, I'm a, I do coding, I'm a screen printer, I'm a me- part-time mechanic, I illustrate for books. 
and I'm self-publishing. You know, people have got multifaceted, and I think one of the things that's really fascinating in the role of the employer now is to sit there and get all these amazing people, and how do you then build the future of your business around interesting people? Because it's, it's, more, it's more sort of... Um, aggressive is the wrong word, but it's more... Uh, positive employment rather than retrospective tend to, we tend to sort of just go I need a, we need a writer we need a copywriter we need a strategist who's got automotive experience so you end up employing these people that just fulfil a, a, a kind of very, a very distinct and very rigorous job title whereas I think it's much more interesting when you just sort of go wow that person's just really interesting get them in and see how we can apply them to make us more interesting and that's the only way you're going to become more interesting is by finding interesting people and letting them be interesting. Yeah. But this is also an issue with my, my my issue with the ad industry is I think it's become a production process. So why would you want to find interesting people? Because all you're going to do is just kill their dreams. You know, you get people who just go right. Here's, you're a writer and you like writing copy about cars. That's lucky. That's what we're looking for. So you just sit in that desk over there and write stuff about cars for the rest of your life. Man, fucking hell! How mind-numbingly boring is that? Whereas I think if you can just go, it just depends on your, I suppose on your ambition, yeah. what, what kind of place you want to work or what kind of place you want to create. And if you can get, get interesting people, yeah. it'll make it more interesting. Yeah. Stands to reason, you'd hope. I think it's, it's really true what you say. And what's a shame, I think, is that a lot of the companies that are doing the more interesting stuff like that, they're usually the less heard of companies because they don't have, the, they don't have as big a voice to kind of, but also, but also name, you know yeah. what, they're not interested in all of that crap about flirting with journalists and getting their own PR. What they want to do is you, you just get on and do your job. Do your job, and if you're all right, then the people you do your job for, your clients, who happen to be the most important part of that process, and, your, and the people who are dealing with your work, if you get that right, you'll get more business, and then you'll be successful. You know, it's like, in, in advertising, we, we chase PR, because we have to look good in the print campaign or whatever the, the, the industry mag is that says, oh yeah, we all believe in diversity. Put your hands up if you believe in diversity. Put your hands up if you do this or if you do that or if you care about students. Put your hands up. And then, you know, that's another little tick box for you. Good. You care about people like that. Good for you. It's all bollocks. It's all buzzwords that we just, you have to do it. You have to be seen to be doing that. And that's the problem that the business is in. Is that it's very good at being seen to be doing it. It's not actually doing anything about it. Yeah. I um, a good analogy. It's like a bit like a theatre. Totally. You've got all the people backstage just getting on with it and not doing and not shouting about it, but but doing it. And then lots of people front of stage shouting about it, not doing it. And well, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. It's the social world that we live in. That if you can put a picture of your face with an italic bit of text underneath it that says diversity is a good thing then any journalist that wants to find out about you would just go to the internet and go Dave Bonaguidi oh look there's a picture of Dave Bonaguidi with diversity is a good thing he must think diversity is a good thing fucking hell man it's like it's like the worst case of Wikipedia <laughs> you know you can write anything you like yeah. and you don't have to do it and in a way you know when you were asking me about um, you know gratis and the, the, the creative school that I tried to do and it was quite interesting because I took that really personally I really wanted to do it and it never happened and I, I look at that as a huge failure um, but a lot of people they come up to me and go yeah yeah you did that free school mate I could have said I could fucking climb Mount Everest in my year <laughs> off 
and everybody would go, what on Dave, what was yeah. it like? I said, it was really cold, <laughs> really cold, and my feet really hurt afterwards, but I did it. Yeah. You can lie and do anything you like, it's just yeah. cut and paste. No, there's no such word as investigative journalism. Check with two people before you write anything. Yeah. Just Everyone just goes, if it's on the internet, it must be true. Yeah. And that's in a way, it's part of the fun that I have with my Instagram account is like nine tenths of it is just lies, <laughs> just make up stuff. Yeah, for self amusement. Just for my self amusement, yeah. but also for for the emails or the messages that I get when people go, "God, Dave, that's great. You got one of you, you know, <laughs> amazing. You climbed Everest." And you go, "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> Did it last week. There was that girl. after work. Did you see that girl? She kind of um, I can't remember what she did. It was an art project where she disappeared for a few months and just photoshopped herself into loads of amazing photos and told everyone she was travelling the world. And like, and then her art submission was obviously the photos and then all the comments. And it was so great. When I like got, the, I did the same thing. Her. When I got married, uh, I did this thing where I didn't tell anybody. I don't like a big old fuss. We literally, you know, left work on a Friday. And people were saying, Are you doing anything this weekend? I was like, no. And I got married on a Saturday. And there were like six people there, ten people. I had my daughter strapped to my chest. She was up about two weeks old. Um, we went in there. It was, I said, it's T-shirts and jeans. I don't want any fucking bollocks. We're gonna, it's just a T-shirt and jeans. And then we're going to go for a Greek at my house. We've got a load of takeaway in. But then afterwards, when I went in on the Monday, people said, oh, what did you do over the weekend? So I got married. And then I put, and they said, blimey, that's amazing. And they were a little bit, some of them were kind of pissed that I hadn't invited them. But then I put together this PowerPoint presentation where I just went through loads of other people's wedding pictures and said, oh, this is the place where we got married. This is the castle. This is the place we stayed in. This is the little drive. This is the church where we got married. I comped my head on to some other people's wedding pictures and me and my missus and said, oh look, and this is, this is, you know, this is the event, this is us <laughs> exchanging our vows and our rings. And then, and then, and here's Des O'Connor, who was a celebrity at the time, he said he turned up and he gave us a load of puppies, <laughs> gave us a load of dogs. And then people were like, blimey, you've got like three dogs off Des O'Connor. I said, yeah. <laughs> you fucking dickhead it's like the worst bit of, the worst bit of photoshop in the world but it's just I, I just I don't know I, I just can't play that game so yeah. it, when, you, when you when you piss around with it but it does it does give you an insight into one how easily led too many people are yeah but in a way that's part of our I mean that's our job is that yeah. you know in, in advertising or marketing you're trying to get people to do something or to experience or to feel something and I find all that quite fascinating that you can actually mess with people and it's quite good fun. It should also be entertaining. Yeah. Uh, for them as well. But then, then it always makes me worry about, you know, the standard of stuff that's out there is so dull that nobody's even trying to have a laugh anymore. Yeah. It's pretty odd. I mean, I know most of that is pretty <laughs> highly illegal. You can't lie. But, but there is something about having a little bit of fun or using it for, for, you know, in a kind of more humorous way. So, yeah, well, I mean, I think having a bit of a joke and having fun is, 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 is better than a lot of stuff that's Well, no, it's just moment. all functional. It's like, do yeah. this, do that, this happens. You know, that's it. Um, there's these ads that keep playing on Spotify at the moment, and it's like this voice comes on, and I, I just feel like I'm in Black Mirror, because if this voice comes on, and it's just like, click this ad now, and you'll get half an hour of free music. And it's, it's that 
like trying to be hypnotic almost and say but you know but click, I think but I think it's just isn't that just the way hour. that people talk now you it's know look at Siri I'm, I, I was talking to Arj the other day about it and I was thinking god is there going to be a moment when our kids you know, your children are probably going to start talking like Siri <laughs> god they'll be like I'm not Hello, Dad. How can I help? You yeah. know, it's going to be like that. <laughs> That's scary. But why not? Because you know, if, if all of a sudden the way that we communicate, you know, my daughter did it the other day. She came back from school and said H, and I was like, "What's that? It's H in this house. It's H. It's not H." And because somebody had said it, yeah, you pick it up. Yeah. Now, who's to say that they're not going to start communicating like Siri or the fucking the you know the, the person who does your your you know the map talk turn left turn right I um people will do that I was talking to a friend the other day and we were I think we were on a, we were on a holiday big group of friends and he and I are massive lightweight so we were up earlier than everyone else because we'd drunk less than everyone else the night before and so we were just drinking for hours we were waiting for everyone to get up but he worked he works in finance but he was saying that he, all, all of the guys that do all the kind of real financial analysis that inform him of what to buy and what not to buy are all telling him that they think the generation coming up now is going to be the most debt-ridden generation yeah. because of it's sort of because social media is a blessing and a curse it's like you're you're seeing everyone's highlight reel but it's so easy to forget that it's the highlight reel until you kind of sit there going yeah. everyone's got a really interesting life I haven't you know and he said that yeah. he, knows people, he knows people that get like um dressed up for a night out and kind of take pictures of it and then don't go out and then they, yeah <laughs> I know but it's pathetic it's isn't it mad. it's mad but, but, then, but you know that but that's the world now where it's like you know it costs everybody wants their pound of flesh off you always on the same night as well so yeah. if you think about that that thing we were talking about earlier about credit cards that you know to be a good citizen to be a good boy or good girl you have to be in debt and I was like hold on a second I've just gone to college and it's, that cost me like 15 grand and yeah, because I lived outside the M25 and my mum and dad don't work in advertising, it cost me another 15 grand to live in London or to live nearby where I went to college. So all of a sudden I'm saddled with 30 grand debt. Now, you've then got to do nine to ten months or a year of placements if you're in advertising just to get a sniff of a job that's going to earn you 18 to 25 grand a year. So by the time you get work and you're paying off those debts and the interest on those debts and your fucking credit cards because you have to be a good citizen, you're like 40, 30, 30, 40 grand in debt. That could take you years to pay back, which is just crap. So, you know, fair enough. If you're gonna go out, get some cardboard cutouts of all your friends and stand in your front room looking like you've had an amazing party just so you get seven more followers on Instagram because everyone goes, this person looks like they're having a real laugh. And then you just sit there quietly eating cold soup and, you know, listening to the, listening to the it was actually podcast. Me. Yeah, it's, it's mate, I'm exactly the same. I'm exactly the same. So what? Getting into a creative job now, what, what does 2017, what do you think that looks like if it's easy? I don't think, I mean, I think it's probably the hardest it's ever been. Um, certainly from the advertising point of view, there's a lot of fear and trepidation, there's no money. So a lot of agencies kind of are, are, are doing this retrospective hire where they just go, oh, we've got a team who's left or a team has broken up or whatever or they've been promoted we need somebody else or we you know so they're always looking for something that they've already had um i think you've got the dual problem as well on the other side of it is that the colleges are all very functional businesses now where you've got people who used to work in the business are teaching the future now i find that a little bit odd 
Um, you know, the business is moving very, very quickly. The world is transforming itself and reinventing itself every five years. And suddenly you've got people who used to be in the business 25 years ago teaching the future. It just seems a little bit bizarre. And I don't think it works because I think a lot of these colleges, they know, you know you've only got to go over the road there to uh, Central St. Martins. I remember being asked to judge St. Martins end of year I think it was a sort of they, they had a design or an advertising company and I was asked to be a, uh, you know, to, to mark them at the end of the year and I was told that anybody with a foreign name you can't fail them and I was like what do you mean and he said anybody with a foreign name if they're really really dreadful you just give them a bare pass but nobody can go back to the old country with a fail because if they do then they don't tell everybody else and they don't send a load of other people because basically the people who come over from foreign country supplement all of the other people so the so the English, people in, London, in, in the UK are going to be paying 15 grand for the course. People from China are going to be paying 60. Which is like, what the fuck is all that about? And I found that pretty distasteful. Um, I don't think it's any different. I mean, colleges are businesses now. There are one or two that charge a, a, a decent rate. A lot of them charge a huge amount of money. And then they get tutors who come in to do it for free or for a very little amount of money. And somebody's making money out of it. Um, and as a result, when you're being taught by the past, I don't think you've got, any, you've got no chance. Um, the idea that, that we had when we were talking about gratis was to make it a live college that was funded by industry. So you would get, it wasn't about advertising either, it would be about 20 companies, but you know, you get Ted Baker, you get a design company, you get an automotive industrial design company, lots of interesting creative companies would create a cartel where they would all pay 10 grand a year 20 grand a year hopefully and then government would fund the rest but you would just get you it was almost like an apprentice so you would go in there and you would do 18 months the first six months would be um a kind of boot camp where you just get fit mentally and then the last year would be you working doing a month here and a month there and six weeks there and two weeks there and just getting the experience of lots of places but also being able to earn money so that if you're working for an agency for example and that agency then goes, oh, we really want to use the school to help us generate a whole load of ideas. You can go, yeah, you can pay us like you would do any freelancer. We've got lots of very smart people, lots of very keen people, and that money goes into a central pot. Wouldn't it be nice if you left college or left school or left further education with two grand in your pocket rather than, or 10 grand in your pocket rather than a 60 grand debt? But it was, you know, the whole idea was it would be housed somewhere. So you'd be you know, dorms and it would be, a real place. But um, what was the question? I just went off monologuing there. I enjoyed it. Uh, but a, a follow-up I'd like to say, so what let that down then? Why didn't that happen? There's no money. Uh, industry, you know, the life expectancy of anybody that's going to make a decision in an ad agency is probably about 18 months to three years. Um, we felt that we couldn't ask for anything more than about 10,000 for an 18-month course. So the way we looked at it was if you had 25 companies that were all you know, signing up to do this, you'd get you know, 10 grand out of all of them, and then the rest of it would be funded by government. So ideally they would go, yeah, you can have the second floor of Big Ben, put some bunk beds in there. and you know, So you treat it like a prison camp, it's <laughs> the wrong <laughs> phrase, but it would be treated like a kind of, almost like a kind of college. So you'd have beds, you'd be fed in there, you would have 
workspace, you would have public space so that every time somebody interesting came in, you could get them to do a Q&A and you'd do some, you know, not TED Talks, but you'd get them to spout off about what they believe in. And then that stuff could be could be um, broadcast externally as well. But it was all, it was supposed to be all free for everybody. So that if you were, you know, my thing was, if you were a girl and you were from the Isle of Skye and you're the next Johnny Ive, good luck, which is dreadful. Yeah, if you're a girl and you're a Muslim and you're outside the M25, good luck. You know, if you're a Muslim and you're a Brick Lane and you're, you know, good luck. Brick Lane, fucking hell, man. That's like around the corner from allegedly the coolest area in London. Now, why would any of those people, want to, why would anybody from different works of, walks of life want to get into the ad or into the creative industries because it's become such a closed shop now the only way you can go in is by either being connected to somebody like I was or being rich enough to afford to go to, to a specific college now I, th- I find that harrowing and I find it really upsetting actually because if you are you know I was I was lucky I, I made a decision to only make myself happy when I was 50 you know when I left Carmel Armour I did it because I was very unhappy and I wanted to go right from now on I just want to be happy and work with nice people um, if you are 20 and you feel creative you know how did you, you know, how did you from Bristol how did you get it I did do a course yeah went up to Lincoln uh, there's a creative advertising course up there yeah I know Giles yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I only got positive things to say about but it. You, but, but, it, but there must have been something that drove you to go off and do that. Now, whether it was the fact that you know you went from Bristol up to Lincoln, yeah, however much that cost, whether it was cheaper to go to to Lincoln or a better course, but you know, there were all these decisions that you make. Now, I just find it really sad that you could have gone through your life being a really creative person that could live a, an unfulfilled life. Now, I know that that sounds. A little no, bit over dramatic, but no, no, it is. You know, I'm lucky. I've, I've, I can express myself creatively, and I can, I've, I've got the choices and probably the momentum now to pretty much do whatever I want to do. Um, so if I want to go off and do a screen print, I can do that. You know, I, I live in London. Everything I need is, is around me. Whereas if you're if you're from a small community and you're creative, you know, creative people don't just come from central London. They come from everywhere, from all walks of life, all religions. And everything, and we've just the, the the education system is flawed in the fact that the only people who can afford to go to uh, the only people who can go to college are people who can afford it. So that cuts out ninety percent of interesting people, and that's my issue. Is if education was more open, I think it would attract more interesting people, and if you got more interesting people in, it would make the industry more interesting. But it's just become a closed shop, and I think we're our own worst downfall. We've created all the issues we've got. And we deserve everything, you know, whatever that saying is, you reap what you sow, and I think we deserve it. We've not so, done anything to jack it and to, to mess with it. So we can't, I mean, you can't wave a magic wand and make a big pot of money appear. <clears throat> what, you know, what, what does a free, a, a free scalable model of gratis look like? Is well, it a, I a think website or is it...? No, I think it becomes about the individual. I think it comes down to the individual businesses. Um, you know, I worry, when, when we were asking cl- people for 10 grand, is I could sit there and go, will you give me 10 grand for 18 months? And you go, yeah. And then six months later, you get fired. And then I get a phone call from the HR department saying, it's just 10 grand. What's that about? <laughs> we want it back. We don't want to pay it. Or we want it back. Or we want six grand of it back. And then you just spend your whole time 
shoveling, you know, because yeah. because it ha- it'll happen. You look at what's going on with your business, you know, where you work, where, wherever I've worked, they have a lifespan yeah. of three or four years, and if it doesn't go well, that can be eighteen months. And I don't want to have to keep, ch- you know, I didn't want to be- create something that was chasing people. If 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 listen, if I had millions, I'd do it myself. I'd get a big building and I'd turn it into a business. And I, but you you need a certain amount of money to pay for all of those all of those things like the building and like the food and you, know, you can get sponsorship and all that kind of stuff it wouldn't be a problem but I, I was never interested in turning it into a money making exercise I think now it comes down to the individual you know we want to when we get up and running we want to just find interesting people and then bring them in but I would do that if I was working at CPB or if I was working at Hal Henry or any other or if Sarge's I'd do exactly the same I think it's down to the individual about how do you try and make yourself more interesting. Well, the only way you're going to do it is find interesting people and fucking hire them and then let them be interesting. But we don't, do, we don't work like that. We go, mm, we've got money problems. We haven't got enough, we haven't got a lot of money. So it's always like trying to find cheap. And then when you're given the two options of, do I get somebody that I know for no money or do I get somebody who's a bit more interesting for no money? People just default. I'll get somebody I know because there's no risk and unfortunately that's why there's nothing you can do about it I mean, the only way you can solve it is people like us too who just go this is the way we work this is how we do it you don't give a fuck about what anybody else thinks this is what we do if you like it come and join in if you don't piss off and, and that's the same theory we have with Unlimited which is I mean we, we did a thing with those guys up at Future Rising called the Smart Fuckers Programme which was if, if you want to be a different type of business, stop hiring the same people that everybody else is hiring. So don't talk to recruitment people, because they don't care, they, they, you know, they, they, they recruit for money. All they're trying to do is place people for money. They don't care whether they're right or wrong, most of the time. Um, and so we created this system up there called the Smart Fuckers Programme, which was just help us identify the 200 smartest, most entrepreneurial, creative people out there. And they, they're very connected to all the universities and colleges, Don and Adam. And they put a list together of all these people and then we got them into the office. And uh, we did two nights of 80 people each night. And there were, we had, a, you know, we had economists and zoologists and really, really weird people. Most of them had very little idea of why they would, or the impact that they could, well, even how ad, ad agencies work. We just said, we're not an ad agency, we're a creative company. What we like to do is solve business problems and when you put an economist in that well that's really interesting when you get a zoologist everybody has got a problem-solving thing about them they love it and when you then combine them and put them into, into these interesting groups something interesting happens and we got these guys they've never met each other um, we gave them a presentation about what we did and what we like to do and the kind of things that we believed and then we set them a brief and we teamed them up together so these people had never most of them didn't live in London they came down for the, for the night we gave them some beer and twiglets we said right you're going to team up in groups of six we set them a brief we gave them an hour and they all six of the groups that we created came back with something interesting in an hour with people they'd never met before in, in fact the, <coughs> the brief we set them we'd had it on our table at the office for six weeks and nobody, could, nobody cracked it and it got cracked by a bunch of strangers who came in an hour to do it now I think that when you apply that model there's got to be something in there. It just requires more work from everybody. But when you're into it, it's not work, it's fun. And I just think it's a sort of weird mentality that 
we love the position and we love the LinkedIn profile a little bit too much and I think sometimes if we concentrate on what we actually do and how we can get the best out of us and how we can get the best out of the people because when you get good people in that are really interesting and will challenge and make it better it makes you better I mean it's all, it's all buzzwords it's all bullshit that we all sit and talk about but half the time we never do it interesting you mentioned us too sort of I almost said earlier on but we sort of moved on to something more interesting but the incubator model does seem to be, at the mm. moment, the closest thing to what probably is is needed to get around the fact that <coughs> university fees are now triple what they used to be. Yeah. Um, and even the incubator model isn't ideal because you're having to rent a desk in an environment, but at least for a couple of hundred pounds a month, I think a lot of incubators charge you yeah. to be in their environment. And for that couple of hundred pounds, you're surrounded by people who are all trying to make your ideas happen and yeah. they may or, that may or may not invest. And most likely, if you're smart and driven and hungry, that's going to kind of work out for you. So I think yeah. the incubator model seems to be the closest thing at the moment. It's a really good, it's a lovely model. I mean, it's, I, I didn't know that that's how, I mean, I knew, I knew I've, I've met Mills and some of the other guys up there and the thing I liked about them was just the fact that they are so anti-selling and they're so anti... You know, there's a sort of weird millennial thing of like, I've got my business plan, I've got my exit strategy and it's all happening within a sort of three-year period and then, and then what? Yeah. yeah, whereas Mills is just like, he just goes, you know what, I just want to hang around with some really nice people, have a load of laughs doing it, make some money, but do interesting things. And you know what, this is the way I'm going to do it. And then when you talk to Mills and you meet him, he's an individual who isn't shy... He's not bashful in any way. He's not going to sit there and go, oh, yeah. He's got a very, very high opinion about what he wants to do, and he is fucking good at it. And uh, that's what you need. And the good thing is, is he'll attract more people like that into his organisation, and they will add to it, and they'll make it stronger and better. Now, the problem with a lot of places is it's driven by two or three people, and if their only ambition is to make a shit ton of money, then the role you play within that organisation is just to... You're just another little droid who's there to make money for, for two other people. And that's the way it goes. Um, but I think this sort of incubator model of allowing interesting people into your organisation to make you more interesting, it's got to work. But not enough people do it. Yeah. Not enough people do it. You know, if you had, if you had five more businesses like us two across the creative sector it would inspire a thousand more people who would then go off and create another 10 who would then go off and create another 20 and you'd end up with a really interesting business but at the moment it's like you know you can count them on on your probably there were two or three yeah you know all all of the the pin-ups that we rave on about in Adland are like fucking totally vanilla compared to totally vanilla compared to a brand like us too I suppose it's one of those things. Just build, build it, and they'll come. You know, it's only like it's, yeah. I can think of a few more like us too. But yeah, you're gonna probably once you're in double figures, everyone else will kind of go. You know, yeah, the, the water's nice. Come in. <laughs> well, also, but also, but it's it. also there's no there's no fear. You know, they're very confident guys. Those yeah. those guys, uh, but they they don't sit there worrying about what the PR is going to say about it, and they just go off and do it. Don't worry about what anybody thinks apart from you, your employees and the people who pay you and the audiences that you're talking to. If you worry about anybody else, most ad agencies don't, don't, don't give a fuck about the consumer. They don't care about their clients. The only people they care about is what other people in advertising think. And who gives a fuck what they think? It's a really odd, really odd strategy. Whereas, you know, guys like us too, anybody's got any gumption running their own business and has got a all they care about is just doing the right thing. 
doing their thing properly. Um, but we've, we've all become sidetracked in, in Adland. I just don't understand it at all. The brainstorms, I think, in that environment work. Actually, work. You know, it's cliche, isn't it? That brainstorms don't work. But I think I've observed brainstorms in more incubator-style fashions, and they sort of work because everyone's got a mutual interest in making the idea or ideas as good as possible. But I think when you take a traditional agency model and everyone's got their title and everyone's in their silo, then force everyone to put their put their egos down, which no one does, yeah, no one does. and then do a brainstorm. It, it becomes like a who can shout the loudest kind of competition. Yeah, totally. Um, and I think that's that's you know that's all part of the new mentality that we have to apply to the way that we work because it's never going to go back to the stage where we have lots of time, lots of money, and you know all the padding around it. I mean, it's like we know that there's no time, no money, and the, the results have to be extraordinary every time. And so you have to work in a different way. Was that the plan with Unlimited in terms of how you'd be looking to build that company? Is it, it's sort of almost like that kind of incubator type. Well, thing? in a way, there's, there's, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's no plan. I mean, there's two of us sitting in, you know, rented accommodate where we get our desk space for free. The if, but we, we have, we have a rule which is we use a quarter of the quarter of the profit we make goes into a fund that we can then invest in other people, which we've done twice so far. Um, where you know some of them are clients that we're working with, some of them are people that we know, some of them are people that we've met that have gone. I really need ten grand or twenty grand to do this, and you go, all right, we'll put that in, and that will give us equity or some some element of relationship. I find that really liberating because if I can sort of sit there and go, wow, man, I wish I'd invested in Facebook when it yeah. came along first time around, or Uber. Yeah. Um, but suddenly gives you the ability to do that without having to jeopardise my own business. Like, you know, my business got sold, cut my old business, Karmarama got sold, which effectively meant the end of my, my business, you know, um, which I found a bit annoying, because I I mean, Narish and I, when we set up Karmarama, we never, we've never set it up to sell it. Uh, but if somebody else comes to me and says, I really want to sell my business, can you help? Absolutely. Yeah. Cut me, give me some, you know, incentive to do it, and I'll fucking help you all I can. Yeah. And I think that's a much more interesting relationship, you know. So, if if we end up being in a situation where we've got two or three, four accounts that we work on at the end of next year, but we've invested in ten other businesses, I'll go. Well, that's cool. And we've got lots of different ways of working it. So we can get we get paid, you know, on time. We get paid on commission. Or we get, we even do one with honesty banks where we work with some people. We just go, you know what? We just really want to work with you. We did a job for a national paper where we helped them out on a thing. We just said, look, you tell us, tell us what you want to pay us. And they were like, yeah, well, we'll pay you this much. And you go, well, that's, actually, it's about twenty percent more than we were, we, we would charge you anyway. But, but there's something about when there's two of you, you can make those decisions. Yeah. Whereas when there's a finance director or your own. You can't. You you have to follow a formula, which I'm fucked if I'm going to follow somebody else's formula, especially in a world that's that's changing so quick. Why would you want to operate on an archaic system where you could have a lot more? The reason people hate their jobs is because you're being dictated as to what you've got to do and how you're going to do it. Yeah. Which is for creative people is about the worst thing you can do. Yeah. I think I can't remember what I was really saying. It this huge study, like decade-long study of loads of different jobs in different industries and they just found that generally happiness in a job was two things which was progress and meaningful work yeah. and autonomy and it, and it and it's like you really go it's not rocket science it's just well, let talented yeah. people 
that want to do well get on with it. Um, well, we have a sort of, there's also a sort of strange dynamic that we're kind of think, moving through, which is quite interesting that, um, you know, you mentioned the word happiness. I think if you said to anybody that you know, are you happy at work? I'd probably I'd guarantee that 90% of them would say no. And, you know, happiness isn't, yeah, I'm moderately happy. You know, when you're in a relationship, you're only in a relationship with your with somebody else that you like if they make your life as a single person better. If if it's the same as being single, well, I don't understand the purpose of that. I mean, it's like it needs to be one plus one equals three. If it's one plus one equals point nine, it's like why would I bother? Um, whereas when we're working, because we know that we have to get salary and because we have to get salary to live where we want to live, or we, so we go to nice places and go on holidays and enjoy do, doing things and also have a nice LinkedIn profile, we sacrifice and we compromise. I just think it becomes sort of more corrupted. We don't think about our happiness as something that's really important, and I think it should be. I mean, it's, you know, I walked out of my own agency that took me 15 years to build it up because I was miserable. I mean, miserable. Absolutely hated it. Um, and it was uh, a very liberating thing to do because I thought, fuck me, man, I'm, uh, you know, I'm 50. When I did it, I was 50, and I thought, you know, I'm probably going to die when I'm 70. I haven't got long. And why would I want to waste another five years of my life working with a bunch of people I don't like, doing things I don't want to do? And it's, uh, I think it's really important that we have some sort of seizing control over what we want to do and why we want to do it. And I think when, you, when your only agenda, I'll guarantee if you spoke to Mills, agenda is to have fun, work with nice people, do some good work. And you can only, it becomes like the reverse of the triangle of death, is that, you know, the only way you're gonna have fun is by working with nice people. Yeah. If you're working with arseholes, you will never have fun. Yeah. And, you know, most ad agencies are built on a really unpleasant person at the top going, do it like this, do it like this, do it like this. You will do great work if you come and work here. But if it's at the, sac- if it's the, if it's at the sacrifice of your health or your fucking mental sanity or your mental health, which is another issue. That's not great, is it? You know, doing great work and then end up killing yourself or being depressed or being angry or losing your marriage or whatever it might be that you have. It's just a really, really corrupted way of looking at it. I think it's, I don't know. It's, I mean, whenever things, whenever change happens, you sort of see, you see the jury split and you kind of see what side people are on but I think it's never been a more exciting time to be totally in a business of um, selling and persuasion because what will never change is companies are always going to want to sell stuff and make money yeah. now the way that we're having to do that is it would seem changing at a, a frightening speed yeah. but for me I think that's really exciting massively that's, well that's the right attitude and, and you know we could do a few more of those a few, few more people who thought like that who could then, who could then challenge the way that it's done because that's what it certainly needs it you know it's become so boring um, and I think because it's become a little bit of a gravy train as well it's like it just it's kind of it is what it is and I think people join it knowing full well what they're going to be doing and whereas, whereas I sort of think you should, shouldn't you be joining something not quite knowing what you're going to be doing it's yeah. becomes much more interesting but it's a different mindset and I think you've got two types of those mindsets in the business and not enough of one of them that are gonna sit there and go, it needs to be more stimulating. You've got lots of people who just go, you know what, I'm perfectly happy making TV ads. Yeah. Which well, maybe maybe those just people don't even know that that's an, an option. I don't think they do, I don't think they do. Like but the that's what I mean. The Isle of Sky thing, you know, I think there's, 
I found out by accident I can do this job and almost everyone I've met either found out by accident or knew someone that knew someone that you know like your dad's restaurant or yeah and it is a shame because you just think I don't know I, what I'm trying I'm still trying to work out at what level does someone just need to have a just at least a conversation and kind of say and I, I hopefully I hope it changes because now there's people making millions of pounds as YouTube um, influencers and things yeah. like that so I'm hoping young people are seeing that and kind of realizing all the ways you can make a living that are that aren't just well it's it's i've got to say it's probably the easiest it's ever been yeah but it's a little bit more black and white now you know my son all he wants to be is a youtuber but so does, every, so does every other fucking 11 year old out there yeah you know always you know dealing in fake yeezys i mean it's like they're, 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 all kids are obsessed about the, the thing of celebrity or fame or you know cultural currency but it's like you know how many of them are actually going to go off and turn that into a yeah. into a business is probably like a tiny premiership amount. Football. It's the yeah. new premiership football, isn't it? Yeah. But, but, I, think but I mean it's it's good that you know these kids twenty years ago would be would you know they, they their outlet would be I want to you know get into advertising. Whereas now you can get a you end up you can employ a, a, a twenty year old um, you know employee who's got ten years experience in code They've got 10 years under their belt already because they've been doing it from an early age. And I think that that's brilliant. Yeah. But we still have that slightly old-fashioned old model of like, oh no, you need to be... Oh, oh, How can you be 20 and have 10 years experience? Because yeah. I'm interested in that. Kind of stuff. What I think is really exciting as well, and again, I hope young growing up are aware of this, and if not, interested to think what needs to be said or done, but there's a whole world around YouTube where you can be employed yeah. that isn't being a YouTube star now obviously everyone wants to be a YouTube star but yeah. it's sort of it's not I don't know it's not binary it's not like well if you're not a YouTube star that's you're it no, you're you nothing. can't yeah, be yeah, in yeah. that world at all it's like there's all this stuff around it you know like Premiership football there's loads of stuff around being a star striker well, uh, yeah and it's, it's interesting I remember I remember going in to speak to my uh, at one of my one of my kids schools and talk to these kids who were like 14 or 15 and said you know what do you want to do and one of them turned around and said, oh, I'm going to get into import and export. I went, what's that? He was like, well, that's when you import stuff and you make... I said, I know that. So it says that on the tin. Of course it's about import and export, but what is that? And he goes, well, I just want to import stuff around the world. I said, what do you want to do that for? He says, it's what my dad does. I'm like, what is it that you really want to do? You know, what is it that you're, when you're outside in the summer and your mum goes... Can you stop doing dot 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 and come in and have your tea? I bet she's not saying, can you stop importing and exporting? Yeah. And he was like, oh, well, I really like football. But he said, I'm never going to be good enough to be a footballer. I said, well, but in the world of football, there are, th- there are a billion jobs. Yeah. You, know, you, you don't have to be a good footballer. Jose Mourinho isn't a very good footballer. He never was a very good footballer. never even was a footballer. But got in through translation. Now, he just happened to be a really, really good problem solver. And strategists that enabled him to yeah. become a fucking amazing manager. Now, whether you've got into through medicine or whether you've got in through import and import and exporting, the way that you work that, there are things that you could do. Wouldn't it be nice if you could sit there and go, "I really want to." The thing that is is my passion is sport or football specifically. How could you get a job in that world and still apply yourself to the things that you're good at that you might not be? You might not be an international footballer. But there's a billion people who aren't footballers, and 
I don't know, I just, I just find that that mentality that we often sit there and go, you know, I'm lucky, I'm creative. I can express myself through my clients as well as through my art. But if I worked in a bank, it would be a struggle. Yeah. You know. But I think we, we sort of often sit there and just go, oh, you, know, you make decisions when you're at school. Or do I do, I do art or do I do you know, languages? Hold on a second, why have you got to choose? Yeah. You're 16. You've been being helped along by people, you know, your parents who've got their own view of what you should be doing or teachers that don't really know you. And it's like, I don't know, I just think it's all, it's all a bit odd. But there is, there is a, you know, it goes back to your thing about the importance of you being happy or you being in control of your life or your career enough to know that when it's not working, do something about it. Or also having a, a dream, you sort of go, that's what I want to try, I want to be happy. You know, life is really, really short. And you know, we're, we're also incredibly fortunate that we live in a first world country that, uh, in, a, in an industry that is like 1% of, you know, on planet Earth. You know, that we're not hungry, we're not, we've got shelter, we're really, really lucky. And to sit there and then do the one thing that we should be doing, which is to just go, just make ourselves happy. Yeah. We, that's, that's we struggle, we make, it, we make it much harder for ourselves, which yeah. is really peculiar. Yeah, they, they, all the happiness studies they do around the world, it's like the, the results are just kind of like, you try and apply some kind of logic to them and it's almost impossible because there's countries that, it's all perspective, isn't it? It's kind of, countries that we in the UK we look at and go well, why are they happy yeah you know because they haven't got all the money and the things that we've got but you know it's just that well, it's, 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 it's that thing of context what does success in. mean I mean it's like yeah. what does it mean very true but it's but I think it's we're also at a I mean I, I talk about this a lot that we're at a kind of junction between the old mercenary world which was run predominantly by white middle, male you know, male middle class men heterosexual men that were, you know, the, the values that they have is all about control, power, money, scale, you know. Whereas I think we're, we're going to move into an era which is much more missionary where values are really, really important. You talk to, if I sat down, how old are you? Are you 25? 27. 27. If I spoke to you or I spoke to my kids who were, you know, 13 and 12 and 13, the values that they have as people are completely different to the values that I had when I was their age or your age, you know. We're, we're transitioning. I think that we, we're, we need to be a little bit... We keep banging on about diversity and getting more women in the workplace. I don't think it's about women or men or black or brown or yellow. I think it's about a mindset that is much more missionary in its outlook, which is values-based rather than achievement-based. And then I think you transition completely. You know, men aren't all like most men, and women aren't all like most women. I think it's just a mindset that we... You know, we, we are never going to attract women into a business that is mercenary. Yeah. Why would you? You're, the only women you're going to attract in are probably women mercenary. Yeah. You don't need any. You don't need any of them. I think it's just, just make it. You know, so when you go, when you look at us two, if us two were the people that were running the industry, or instead of the IPA or whoever it is, and went, this is the way it needs to be across. You, you attract completely different people. Yeah, You've got too many people who sit there and go, you know what, it's all about me. How do I make as much money as possible? How do I control? How do I build a huge temple of an empire? It's interesting. Because uh, you know, the people that care and want to make a difference are all usually somewhere near the bottom. But yeah. it's like, no matter how much you do at the bottom, something does have to change at the top, doesn't it? 
yeah. think it's I think generally yeah culture is changing big time because like things like um, you know like headspace and like mindfulness and yeah there's just no way 15 years ago you could have said to somebody so what do you do so like, oh, well I meditated for 20 years and there's no way that someone wouldn't just laugh at you or kind of go what what did you do and yeah. did you play well music well I well? think you're mental yeah. yeah I mean we used to do this thing at Kamarama and people absolutely hated me for doing it and the more they hated me the more I did it was on a Monday we would have a meeting with the whole agency in a, in a meeting room and there were only about there were 40 of us 50 of us maybe and it got to even when we were 80 or 90 um, and on the Friday night you would get an email with the song that we were going to sing <laughs> and <laughs> the best one that we ever did was um, Bonnie Tyler Total Eclipse of the Heart where all the blokes on one side all the women on one side and we sang and we got a bloke in called Michael who used to have a little organ and he would sit there and play it and then we just have a good old sing song and it was the most shameful embarrassing yeah. fucking crazy thing you could do but it was when he came out you just thought well it's not going to get any worse than this yeah I've just sung like a twat yeah shouting at all the girls across the way in a, in a kind of duet um, and I could see that some people just absolutely hated it and all they yeah. wanted to do was just go upstairs and work but it was like it was my place yeah and this is the way we're going to fucking do it and yeah. if I'm going to make you sing you're going to fucking sing because I'm going to sing yeah and I, I feel as embarrassed as you do but it was a really fun way of um, well not fun because it wasn't fun but it was an interesting way of getting all of your shame out of, for the week out in one go yeah that's a nice idea and and then and then we stopped doing that and we did something else but it was like I like that whole thing of uh, just messing with it and playing with people in a way so they don't quite know what's going to happen next yeah I, I personally find that really entertaining. I mean, it's. I hope. I hope. I hope culturally things do move that way, away from alpha personalities. It's like, do you know what I mean? Let's not. All well, I think we're also when you watch, and, you know, when you watch what's happening at WPP, um, I don't think anybody's going to be upset about that, uh, apart from one person. Um, personally, I think that that's it's great news for the industry. Yes. Yeah. You know, chaos is a brilliant time to thrive. Because when it's all chaotic, there's opportunity everywhere. Um, and rather than sort of bemoaning the fact that this wonderful thing is, you know, this, this wonderful empire is struggling, no, fuck them. They had it good, now let somebody else have a go. And uh, I don't know, I, I just think we need to sort of be a little bit more proactive and kind of get on with it and build these things, but do it in a nice way, because that model is not, not good. It's restrictive, greedy. And, and archaic and uh, I think the more the more of those natural values that we bring in that you you would you know you wouldn't hang around arseholes at home you wouldn't live you wouldn't do a flat share with a racist or a bigot you know you'd make a decision about not doing that but I think and you, and you look at all the harassment stuff that's kind of been happening over the last sort of six months in the States and how that industry mercenary if ever if ever there was an industry that was mercenary and now you're looking at all of the fucking blokes that are being knocked off their perches because they were too powerful. People shit scared of them. And if I say this, then I'll get, I'll get criticised. So I'll just put up with their bad behaviour. And the more you do that, the more you allow them to do that, the more they'll do it. Yeah. I mean, I've got to say, I'm stunned at... When's it going to happen in advertising? <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. It's, it's got to be, be coming because yeah. I know so many stories. And it kills me because there's people that I've worked with, people that I've employed who are like that. That I should have, and when I saw it happening, I should have just gone over there and knocked them clean out. Yeah. But I didn't. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're going to get it. It's 
going to come. But I've got to say, I'm still stunned. Why has it not happened? Because if ever there was a business that was morally, you know, fucking destitute, yeah. right up there with uh, with Hollywood, right up there, probably still, worse. Still probably worse. Yeah. Um, I think it. Yeah. No, I think it will happen. I heard. I don't know who told me. Someone. It was like a very forward-thinking CEO. <laughs> And they sort of, apparently they were leading a meeting, they told a joke, and sort of like, people kind of chuckled and like one or two players in the room just laughed really loudly, and apparently they just stopped the meeting and they just said, that wasn't a funny joke, and you shouldn't have laughed that loudly. You know, because it is that like, the CEO says it's 10 times funnier. Kind of, and yeah, I hope we move away from that, and we move to a place where we all have to stop um, Shouting over each other and pretending we were also perfect and yeah. have all the answers. Well, just kind of just do, do you know? Again, if you were to set up a business, if you were to set up a business tomorrow, the last thing you'd do is set it up like a traditional, like an agency that's been going ten years, twenty years, thirty years. You go, well, these are the values that we have. This is how we're going to do it. This is the way I want to do it. I'm not doing it like your model. You do your one. I'm going to do my one. Fine. Well, I haven't asked you any of the questions that I had written down. Oh, um, hopefully, we've got to some time yeah. so we can go through yeah, some going. of them. You know, you've just set up Unlimited. We've been speaking about some more progressive kind of uh, creative models of um, yeah. businesses. What are three personality traits you're looking for in creative people that you, you know, problem solvers you bring in? Right, it's quite interesting this because I've got into a lot of trouble with this. Um, there's an artist called Anthony Burrell. He did a brilliant poster, said, um, work hard and be nice to people. And I remember I got sent a copy of it. <laughs> I wish I'd kept older it now, it'd be worth something. But um, he sent one to the office, and I was like, oh, this is really nice. And then we sort of, we took that at Kamarama, because, you know, Kamarama, Karma, Kamarama was, was based on the concept of karma. I mean, it's like, you know, pretty naive and very, very idealistic. If we do a good job for you and we're nice to you, then maybe you'll stay with us. And then you'll tell all of your other mates, or your clients, or your colleagues, that it's a nice place to work. But you've got to do it genuinely. And so we had this wall where we put, be nice, work hard, be nice to people, play ping pong, because we like playing table tennis. And I was thinking about this the other day. The ping pong is kind of not really relevant because it was just a fun thing, but I think it's, you know, work hard, be nice to people, and never give up. Um, you've got to be nice to people to start with, otherwise you're going to fail. I think the model of the horrible dictator, the shithead that everybody finds themselves drawn to, that you then go, God, he's such a shithead, but the work is amazing, so I'll put up with his shitheadedness. It's just irrelevant now. So you have to be nice, you have to fucking work hard, because if, if there's other people who work harder than you, you're going to lose that. But then also just never give up. I mean, it's, for me, you know, I'm not very bright, but I'll keep going longer than any other fucker. And if I'm still there at two in the morning when everyone else has gone to bed, then I'm going to win. And um, as an example, we did a we did a thing the other day. We don't pitch at Unlimited. We don't like pitching. I think it's a it's a uh, horrible beauty parade that has been set up by other people who want to make money out of the business intermediaries. Um, and so they create this kind of this process. We did a chemistry meeting. They said, oh, "We just want to come in and meet you and say hello. Tell us about yourself." Another one. Well, I've got time to tell you about ourselves. We'll go in there with four ideas. So we went in there with a whole bunch of stuff, and then the other agencies were like, "Well, fucking hell, we didn't know you're supposed to do work. 
That's not my problem, mate. Yeah. You know, if you just think that when a girl looks, you know, if you go on a date with somebody, that you're just supposed to sit there and do idle chit chat, or do you do try and try a bit harder? That's up to the individual. Yeah. Um, and so I just think uh, it's it's just about you just have to hustle a little bit more or a lot more. And it always works if you're nice. It always works if you you know work hard. But it's the kind of never giving up that I think sometimes your indestructibility is a lot more than talent alone. Yeah. Very, uh, very true. It's a German word, isn't it? Um, Sitzfleisch, which I've just done a terrible um, right. pronunciation of that. But it's, it's just staying up, basically. Isn't it? <coughs> That's what I love about the Germans, is they have these sort of single words, yeah. don't they? Laughing at somebody else's misfortune. Yes. Well, what was Same that? power. But we worked with a uh, creative team, actually, at um, last agency. And there was um, the, the guy who was German. And, just became this thing we just had this wall full of words just because we were like that's a great word why haven't we got that it describes a genuine emotion you know that you feel but, this, it, but it's, it's, it's a really interesting I mean it's, it's interesting that the Germans have created a word for it because they probably would have created it a few hundred years ago as well but that staying power is like yeah. man I think that it's probably the best bit of advice I can't even remember who told it to me but it was just, you just keep fucking going. I don't know if it's something that's ingrained in you as a, a sort of immigrant spawn, is yeah. that, you know, you have to keep going. Yeah. And um, I know, you know, in life, as, you, as we've all experienced, there'll be ups and downs. And just when you think you're on an up, you'll fall back down again. But I mean, that's life. Yeah. And the trick is, I think, it used to really get me I used to get very down about stuff and think about stuff too much and almost get into a sort of depressed state about it all. And now I just think, you know, what will be will be. Yeah. And in a way, I've got, got my screen printing, which I'm in control of. When I'm in my job, when I was working in Karma Army, I was having to work with people I didn't want to work with, doing work for clients I didn't want to work with, doing things I didn't want to do. Suddenly, you get too many negatives in your life, it fucks you. Yeah. So what I've done is I've just gone, right, screen printing, it's all positive. Even when I have a shit day and I put my foot through the screen or nothing works or you know, something breaks, it's fine. Change it. Get my motorbike. My motorbike never works all the time, but I'll get a huge amount of joy from that. And it's about how do you fill your life with things that give you pleasure or make you happy. And if you can have more of those, you've got to be alright. Very true. Um, so when you're trying to solve a business problem, what sort of questions are going through your head? What sort of questions are you asking yourself? Well, the first thing that we do at Unlimited is to sort of sit there and go, is, is that the right business problem you're trying to solve? Like I said, the question that we ask is what keeps you awake at night? And I'm still yet to find anybody that's turned around and gone, it's advertising. How quickly can I, cheat, how quickly can I do my advertising and for what price? That's what keeps procurement people awake at night. And I'm not interested in working with procurement people. Um, when you sit there and look at the problems that they come at you with, it's a little bit like you know the way that you know Columbus was looking for India and he ended up finding America. And it was only because he got one degree off at Genoa, he ended up in a fucking completely different continent. Um, I think it's it's literally understanding, working really really closely with the client, and finding joy in their business rather than your business. You know, finding joy in making TV ads is a little bit niche, 
it's become an entire industry. Um, but when you sit down with a client and you work out and, you, and you're really genuinely interested in what your problem is, it's, it's very often not advertising. I think the, the model that we're going to move into, I think advertising has in effect become a production process. And the quicker we get the, produ- the people who like to produce stuff and craft stuff, let them do it. Let them crack around doing 30 second ads for no money, happy days. But when you get all of those people like Mills who can sit there and go, what's the real problem? And now I'm going to apply the same logic that I would have done solving 30 second ad to your real business problem. I think it will change. So the, the, the first question is always like, what is, what's the real problem? Um, and then also, I think, asking the questions like, right, if we know what the problem is, how can we, within the constraints that we've got, because we've all got no time, no money, huge demands on the results, how do you then, how can you ask some of the questions, do we need to do it like that, do we need to do it like that, just because it's worked in the past, is it time for a change? And I don't think we do that enough. And um, so that's always very stimulating when you challenge it in some way. And you don't have to challenge it big, you can still, you can tweak and you can challenge small, but it's just about constantly asking questions. I think we've, again, in advertising, we've created a formula, and we know what works and we know what doesn't work, and so we we just got to follow suit. And it's, I think it's quite sad because we don't ever sit there and go, really, is that the right way of doing that? You know, every fucking car ad on TV looks exactly the same because they've got exactly the same budget, they've got exactly the same machine that generates these computer computer versions of the cars that you put them in the landscape, you get to do. It. I don't I mean, Every perfume ad looks exactly the same. Nobody sits there and goes, why don't we just try and stand out a little bit more? Because we, we listen to our consumers too much, our consumers just go, that's all right, it's all right. You know, why change it? It's all right. Yeah. And they, don't know, they don't know the difference between any of those brands because everyone's just doing the same old shit. And, and kind of, if there, if there was ever a phrase that summarised the, the malaise that we're in is, good enough is enough. It's just enough. Which is... What a fucking way to go through a creative industry. Good enough is not good enough. Good enough is a five out of ten. We should be aiming for, you know, eights, nines, tens. Yeah. I heard something the Vano song like, that's such a great test as you you say to someone, rate this out of ten, but you can use seven. <laughs> and people go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're giving a six or an eight, like basically, you know, or or, or maybe much lower, but yeah, yeah, when you can't use that thing that's perfectly non committal, beige. I I never know whether I'm massively over um, underestimating people's intelligence when I look at car ads and um, you just see the car driving, and I'm like, I think. Don't people know? I'm sure people know that cars that's, that's what they do. drive on roads. That's what they like, do, yeah. <laughs> maybe I am, I don't know. I, I assume people are pretty smart, um, generally. You but. know what, but I think it's because we, we listen too much, we do so much research and we kind of play it all back. But most of the stuff that we end up doing is written by people out there anyway. Yeah. You know, inadvertently. Oh, if you do, yeah, I, mean, I, I mean, I use this as an example. Years ago, we were asked to pitch for Wrigley's, sent us a... Um, said, would you be interested? And we said, yeah. And they sent us through a fax in those days where a list of 30 things that we had to put in into the ad. And it was like, you know, boy meets girl, they split up. Uh, you know, number four was they have to tear the stick of gum in half and they go off on their separate ways and then they meet up again. They go for a wonderful adventure and they meet up again. And in a, in a, in a, they think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if he was, she was there with me? 
and then they get together and then they had this thing where they had what they called the they called it the front loading appreciation shot and it was the bit where you you have you get the stick of gum and you put it on your put it on your teeth and you bend it into your mouth and then you yeah. turn to the camera and go Mm-mm. that's good tasting gum now the fact that they called that the front front loading appreciation shot yeah and i was like what is that and we phoned them up and said what does that mean and they explained it all right Somebody actually wrote those words down. Yeah. Got paid to write those yeah. words. Yeah. Or, or, or they all sat around in a room and discussed it, and then a whole bunch of people said, front loading, that's what it is, it's the front loading appreciation yeah. shot. You're like in The Apprentice when they do their brainstorms. And, and they're trying to come up it. with their that, names. That was like 19, that was in 93, yeah. 94. Wow, wowzers. You know, if, if I hadn't been young and stupid, I would have jacked it in there. <laughs> taking, taking up screen printing there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Um, Tell me about a time you felt really lost in your oh, career. God. Or don't if it's too no, 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 emotional. No. no, no, I'm not emotional. I'm a bloke. Um, I've, I've felt lost in, in pretty much every agency I've worked in at some stage. And I think it's just natural. As a, as a creative, you are very, it's a very confidence-driven business and a game. Uh, you know, I feel lost every time I do something that somebody else doesn't like. I feel lost, mm. and when they do something that they, when I do something that they like, I'm on top of the world. So I'm like a kind of you know seesaw of emotions constantly. Um, in various jobs, I remember when I was working at Hal Henry, I was in there. I was, you know, me and Steve went in there when we were like there were six, five or six people, and we went through a huge learning curve and were exposed to all sorts of incredible things. Uh, and then I remember sort of there's a moment when we sort of were like well maybe we don't really want to we don't sign up for that anymore and there was a moment when you feel lost because you you kind of everybody at the time Hal Henry was a great agency and I remember everybody was going god man you're lucky you work at this great agency and I remember thinking blimey I'm I'm trying to leave and I felt lost then because you're like wow what maybe I'm fucked up you know maybe I'm the mad one why am I desperate to leave this place when everybody else I know is talking about trying to get in there. And then I think a lot of that is, you know, what we talked about earlier about your own your own personal ambition or your own self-confidence or whatever it might be. And um, but I'd say the most lost I felt was probably when I was when I was leaving Karma Armour, just because you know I'd set up agencies before that. So, you know, I worked with Narish again, we did St. Luke's and when I left there I didn't really feel that didn't really feel that a moment. I think it was also because it was cooperative. There were lots, there were lots and lots of people who owned it. We just happened to be the people who set it up. Um, but with, with Karma Armour, it was very personal because it was, uh, yeah, we'd gone through a lot of change. You know, Narish had left the business in 2005, and I had to sort of had to sit down and try and rebuild it again from literally nothing. And uh, it got to be something I was really proud of and something that was really good for about five or six years. It was amazing, and then. When it went bad for me, it just—it was just a horrible experience. Uh, I suddenly found myself surrounded by—I felt like I was in the minority, and I think it was one of those things where I was sort of more disillusioned about people. Actually, I think it's you know the, the founding principles of the place were no creative awards, you know, work hard, be nice to people, play ping pong. Uh, it was about personal values that I had that I thought everybody else had, and I remember when I left as I was leaving the building, the, the agency was entering awards again and I was like, blimey man, that was, we were the only agency in London 
that were that had an interesting vibe, had an interesting culture that didn't enter creative awards because because I felt it was fucking wrong. And you all looked me in the eye and went, I agree. And the minute I left, you all started entering them again. And it was like it killed me. That hurt more than anything actually because I thought, God, you like don't believe anything. You're only here for the beer. You're only here for the LinkedIn profile of like I did two years at Kamarama. And it was just like it felt like it was like a fucking tribute band, not the agency that I've been part of. And it was just so leaving it was was very easy. But it took me two years to to get the balls to do it. And um, you know I lost everything. I mean I, you know they they all just sold off to somebody else, and all, they've all made lots of money. But it was uh, it was more of a sanity call for me, and it was uh, I had to just just do it. But that was probably the most lost I've ever felt. Yeah. Was, there, was there a silver lining? Did that set you up for a later success in your eyes? Or, or? No, I mean, it sort of taught me a few things. Yeah. I mean, you know, never do business, never, never give equity to arseholes is, is one thing it's taught me. Um, I think uh, it's it taught me more through the negative experience than I would get from the positive. I mean, the way I've always looked at it, and I've talked about this with a couple of people, is that I think every experience you have in your previous workplace will influence the next decision that you make or the, the, the way that you behave next. I think as people, we have to learn and develop and transition. Um, and so there were lots of things that I learned, but the hard way. Yeah. Do you have, do you have a favorite um, failure or apparent failure that you think maybe everyone else thought, they really fucked that up, but actually you know that it, it served you really well? Well, I mean, I've fucked up so many. I've fucked up so many things, so many times. I mean, it's. But the, but the way I look at it is, it's not so much a kind of um, a fucking up thing. I mean, you know, there, there were decisions that I made when I was running, when I was at Panorama. But if I would, if I had the chance to do it again, I'd probably do them exactly the same way because they were sort of they were calls at the time. I think you know, as you go through your life, you have to make decisions, and. Um, as you're running, when you're running a business, it's really important that you make decisions and you kind of you you gonna, you're committed to them. And then when you realise that they're not working, then you do something. You do something about it. Um, you know, there are reasons why I made some of those mistakes. That it was the only decision I could really make at the time. Um, and so I don't, I don't know. I, I, I fuck up, but I kind of take a huge amount of uh, of joy in fucking up as well. I mean, I'm writing a book at the minute, which is um, called Farting and Chewing Gum. Which is a, uh, which is a sort of compilation of things that, like like this, all the stuff that's happened to me that I've experienced, or some of the, the theories that I have. And one of the, one of the sections is, um, uh, you know, fucking up, and about some of the fuck ups that I've done. That if you read them, you, you don't have to do them, because you know, I, yeah, somebody had sat down to me and said, never pitch in sandals, and here's why. <laughs> I would have gone right. I'll, I won't do that. Why shouldn't you pitch in sandals? Well, it's because because it just it just it just doesn't work. Well, it didn't work for me. Is it un- you, undermines what you're pitching? It, well, it undermines or? everything. It's just you look like I'm an sure idiot. I'm, you look like an idiot when yeah. you turn up in like Berkeys and yeah. everyone, and you're pitching to a load of city people yeah. or people in the industry. You know, it just makes you look slightly stupid. <laughs> and uh, I'm waiting for a horror story where you're well, going to no, oh, this there fell is, on my foot. Yeah, yeah, no, there is a right. total horror story. I mean, it gets it's you know, pitching in sandals was basically me opening the door to a disaster yeah. there were a whole load of other reasons why I fell down the metal steps of that disaster and smashed all my teeth in, that um, ticket in. but it was it was the, the, uh, if, I'd, if I'd gone in with smart shoes maybe some of the other things that happened wouldn't have been so catastrophic <laughs> but it, if somebody had sat me down yeah. and gone Dave 
from experience, never do sandals, and here's why. Then I would sit there and just have it in my head. Yeah. It's like a cautionary tale. At least Crocs. So this, yeah. So this book, so this book is a little bit. There's, there's. When I was writing down all the things that you shouldn't do that I've done. Yeah. It was almost a book in itself. Yeah. I only wanted it to be like here's ten things, eleven things that I've done that you don't have to do. I'm on about twenty at the minute. I'm about to narrow them down. So there's hundreds of mistakes. War and peace. Yeah. Yeah. Right, well I look forward to uh, reading that. <laughs> yeah, well I'll send you a copy. Yeah, please do. Um, if you had a gun to your head and I had to have one phrase tattooed on myself, what would it be? Wow. I did it my way. It's an archer. Um Or fuck you if you can't take a joke. No, but it would be, it would be probably my, I did it my way. I mean, I'm kind of, um, or we did, we did it our way. I like, it's not so much about me, it's more... I like my ambition is always to be part of a gang. Yeah. I'm not a kind of um, I'm not I've got an ego, but I'm not a kind of megalomaniac. I mean, I, I kind of I love being part of a gang because I know my shortcomings more than anybody. Yeah. And uh, I always like to try and surround myself with people who are smarter than me. But if we can, if collectively we can all do things together that are mould-breaking and world-changing. So we did it our way, but it would look weird if I had it as a tat on my back. Yeah, big eagle. Yeah, we did it our way. I don't know. I don't know how that would yeah. work, but that's that's the that's the kind of flaw. That's the logic. Yeah, I keep waiting for a really smart reply to that from someone, which is just um, I had a gun to my head, so I had had to get this tattoo. Well, that's what I was thinking because there was, yeah. was a bit of me that was like, well, if I, you, you wouldn't have to put a gun to my head for me to get a tat, I would actually quite like it. <laughs> On your forehead. Maybe well, I I should, but the but it's weird. I do remember once going on holiday with a mate of mine, Smudger, and we went to Spain, and we were just sitting in a bar, and both of us had shaved heads at the time. We were sitting in a bar in the middle of nowhere, and this big um, black Range Rover turned up, and it sort of all tinted windows, and it parked up, and then this bloke got out, and he had a big old chain on him with a gun, with a kind of like a gold gun, not a real one, but a gold, you know. On his chain, and he was all covered in like dimples that were obviously where he'd been stabbed or shot, horrible sort of jailhouse tats and glasses. And he walked over to us, and I think he was obviously the minder for some drug dealer or something. And the drug dealer, I want to go and have a drink there with my girlfriend, but there looks like there are these two heavies over there, us, oh, me, and, right. me and Smudger. So this bloke came over to check us out, and I remember he came walking over, and he was all peacocking with this, you know, when, when you see a bloke covered in holes. Yeah, and, and jailhouse tats that's pretty intimidating anyway when he's also got a, a huge thick gold chain with a yeah. gold gun on it it's quite intimidating so he walked over to us and he literally stood in front of us and then he turned round and on his back he had the biggest tat I'd ever seen that said only God can judge me on literally from his shoulders to his ass, ink yeah. and we all just went me and Smudge just went yeah fair enough yeah only God can judge you yeah and then he obviously realised that we weren't going to try and stab him and then the gangster and his mole turned up and they all had a drink. And we left sh shortly afterwards, but it was a really, it was a very odd, uh, I don't even know why I'm saying that, but it was just a sort of strange, strange moment when yeah. uh, he had his tap, he had his, his, his way of life loud and proud on his back. Could be listening to this. Yeah, yeah well, I have a funny feeling he'll probably be dead. <laughs> He's probably so in a ditch somewhere in I'm Marbella. I'm going to have to ask you this because you've brought it up, mate. What would be on your medallion? If again, gun to your head. If his gold gun from his medallion was to your head, you're saying you have to get a huge medallion with something gold plated on the bottom, what would it be? 
Oh. I think it would be. There's something about the thing. I, it's a sort of weird one. I remember um, yeah, when I first saw that the, the, the line that Nike used. You know, just do it. I thought there was something really un un end line about it. What I liked about it was it wasn't an end line. It was a kind of an attitude. And uh, I like that kind of. Yeah, it, those sort of inspiring. I think yeah, with a lot of those things, they become very introvert. You know, it's like only God can judge me. It's all about me. Whereas, I don't know. I, I, I kind of love that whole thing of just fucking just go off and just do it. Yeah. Or do it. It's just like two tiny little words that I've found to be the most inspiring I've ever heard. Because whenever I've sat down with people and they've gone and you go, I've got this thing, I've got this thing, I've got this thing, and then you know, four letters consider and transform your life do it go on fucking get up off your ass pull all those fingers out of your arsehole and do something yeah and it's a uh, I don't know I, I kind of like those those I, I love that as humans I think we've become too we've become too safe and we also we think about stuff too much and you know I would love it if there was a way of inspiring people to go off and create that change and make that change positive and yeah. I think do it probably sums it up I think it's sort of quite I think we, we do it actually because it's they're, they're sort of I'd like to this or that like the cult of New Year's resolutions yeah. it's quite rewarding just saying it isn't it you know this year I'm just really going to well, on why don't we have a little game <laughs> why don't we have a little game right, on Instagram yeah. is uh, we will write each other a list of things I will write you a list and you write me a list of things that I have to say I've done and see how many people believe it because I guarantee <laughs> if you say uh, we can sit there and do comps of look look at me down the gym you've got an eight pack people go bloody hell Dave that's amazing what a transformation what a transformation look at you well done man how do you fit it all in it's called Photoshop that's how I fit it all in very good yeah I wonder if I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you're, it's Christmas now, isn't it? So it's going to be, what's your New Year's resolutions? It's yeah. It's just going to be like, I generally find you, there's like a formula to a New Year's resolution, which is just like, it's really vague. Yeah. It's like, oh, I just want to, I just want to look after myself more. Yeah, or, yeah. I just want to lose some weight. And it's like, well, how much do you want to lose? When by? How much does that work out per week, per day? There's, there's what's a, your strategy? How are you going to make sure you stay on track? Like, it's like, oh, you know, I don't want to overload myself with all that. Stuff. But as people, I think we're forced into that, which yeah. is that sort of you know, headline writing. It's yeah. almost like, what's the thing that summarises us? Yeah. And then you sort of go, yeah, it looks like, you know, Dave looks after himself. <laughs> I need to have that end line for me. Very good. And then you sort of go, do you? <laughs> I mean, that's a, yeah, and then no one does it 100% of the time. Yeah. I think I think 60% of the time I can say I take good care of myself, but I definitely haven't been recently. So, um, all right, okay. When you hear the word successful, mm. who or what comes to mind? Other people. Um, it's a weird one. I, I remember, I remember uh, a long time ago going around when I used to go out had friends with people had friends uh, going going to a guy's house and he lived in Clapham and he's he had all his ads on his wall and I was like that's really funny and he was like what do you mean and I said well if you've done it for us because we all work in advertising and, you, and I realised he was not being funny at all he, he had his ads on his wall right but it were ads for other people you know yeah it's like, I, don't, I mean I put my screen prints on my wall I don't really understood why you put your own ads on your wall, and he had them everywhere. 
and some of them weren't very good. I mean, like, you know, they were really not very, very average. And I think he saw himself as a huge success. And I remember he came into Hal Henry once, and Steve Henry said, "Oh, let's have a look at your work." And he went, "What? Just get the last six years of Dean AD." I'm in there. It was like the arrogance of the bloke. And I think he saw himself, as I said, as very successful. And it depends on how you judge yourself. I mean, I, I don't look at anything I've ever achieved as anything to talk about because it's the past. It's like, once it's done, it's done. And I, I get very, very bored very quickly. Uh, I don't think money is successful. I mean, you know, for me, success is getting on my bike and it starts. That's a fucking that's a <laughs> success. You know, going to the toilet in my house and there's bog paper. Yeah. Success. <laughs> you know, small, small things. Yeah. But it's um, I don't know. I, I, my, my, do you know that's a brilliant story about um, Johnny Wilkinson when he was a kid was just obsessed about winning the World Cup. That's all he wanted to do, and that became his thing. And when he did it, he was like 26. No, and not only did he do it, but he kicked. He did it. He kicked the last ball. Kick. of the drop kick you know in the in the dying seconds against Australia in Australia I mean he couldn't, couldn't have fucking written, written that script any better and when he won it he was suddenly like Ooh, what do I do now yeah. that's my life over and his goal he'd achieved it now but he had such a huge stretch from being a you know a five year old boy kicking a ball in, in Russell Park to suddenly you know winning the World Cup in Australia against the Australians with the last kick of the game in the last second and he, he had a big depression after that because he yeah. was suddenly like, God, what do I do now? You know, what next? Whereas for me, it's like, I, I look at like, oh, it's something that happens when you have children. But everything gets foreshortened. You don't think about stretch goals of like, I want to earn this much money. I want to have a house, I want to have a car, I want to do this, I want to on these sort of holidays. I think that's very, very superficial. There's a sort of analogy that I use a lot, which is a little bit like when you watch snooker. snooker where you kind of go, with snooker it's about three sessions a day, you've got the morning session, the lunchtime session, the afternoon, or the, you know, afternoon session, the evening session, and if you can try and have two that are good out of those three, then that's a success. But it's like day by day, job by job, hour by hour. You know, with my screen printing, I'll do something and if I sell out, I'm like, yeah, great, what am I gonna do next? You know, and then I'll do one that doesn't sell and I'm like, fuck, what do I do next? You know, when I worked at four, they used to say, if you do something wrong, change it. If you do something right, change it. Because it's, if you sit back and relax, you're fucked. And they were, you know, four looked at themselves as, you know, they created culture. And you can't, you can't ever sit back. Musicians don't sit there and go, yeah, I did that and I'll take the year off. Because, you know, you use that momentum. It's like that second wind. You know, you do something good. Now keep going, keep going. It's back to that thing of... Never give up, or whatever the German. What, is, what was the German? It's flash. Yeah. Staying power. Yeah. Which my which my German friend. And I think tell me I'm pronouncing incorrectly. But. Well, send that to me because I think I'd like to get that as a tap. Yeah. I'd like, I'd like you On to stand, stand. <laughs> down the yeah. barrel. Oh yeah, yeah. But it's um, yeah. I don't I don't think success, success doesn't really mean anything. I mean, it's depends on how you, you know, if you're doing it for other people and turning around and going, yeah, I climbed Everest. I can do that on Instagram. Did you though? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I remember, I remember, you know, being at school and then going, oh, you, you, you know, you won't be successful if you don't get all your O levels. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, right. I, yeah. And you believe it. You believe it because you're young. Yeah. 
I got art and woodwork, nothing else. And then I remember when I went to my first interview, he said, oh, how'd you do at school? And I said, oh, I did all right. You know, I got like, I got 11 O-levels and an A-level. And he went, right-o. <laughs> I just went, oh, oh all, that, no. all that bullshit. I've, I, I mean, can just lie about everything. I've never shown my degree to anyone. And I just don't think, you know, it's like park, all those companies have made so much money out of parking tickets because no one ever calls to be like, this is an illegal <laughs> Just sort of yeah. reverse of that. Well, it's, really? it's the gym model, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I know you're, you're, you're fat in, in January. I'll get you then. And you, you, you know, you'll go for two months and then you'll stop in March and you'll carry on. Yeah. It's very true. Um, do you have any weird habits or things you like doing? For example... Uh, out of habit, I always spin my plate 90 degrees counterclockwise before I eat. Or one I heard recently, um, which is great, is eating ice lollies in very hot showers. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Who was that? Uh, it's a girl I worked with at my, at my last agency. I can't I, remember, we were talking about a... weird little personal, and she was like, I think I said about cleaning your teeth in the shower, which is a ter- like, terrific waste of water. Yeah. But if you're feeling a bit tired or a bit jaded, it's quite nice. And then she was like, yeah, have, you ever had, have you ever had an ice lolly in the shower? And I was like, fucking hell. So she would, she had like rocket lollies and then she'd have a really hot shower. I think, must be, I think that that could also be an erotic fixation. <laughs> there's going to be, there's that sounds really cool. I might try that when we go into that. <laughs> you might not. Some people don't have that these. That does things, sound very erotic. <laughs> um, I've got, uh, there's one that I do. That I've, that I've been doing since since I've been riding a motorbike um, is when I put my helmet on. If my ear folds down, because that's you know as you pull your helmet, if my ears don't feel flat, back, yeah, then I then I have to take my helmet off and <laughs> do it again. But it's also I get this thing when you put your snood up, and that has an effect on your ear as well. But if I if I feel like my ear's not flat, then I won't go. I'll take it off and I start again. <laughs> I think I do the same. I'm, I'm very OCD. Yeah. Very OCD. I cycle to a train station in the morning and I've got a snood. And if I feel like it's pushing my beard up rather than down, <coughs> well, it's, so I have it, to it do it again. Because, because I think when you're on a bicycle or a motorbike, you have to be aware of everything. Yeah. And if you're suddenly going, I'm aware of everything, but my ear's bent. Yeah. Then that's not good. Yeah, that's not good. And that's the kind of stuff that could lead to an accident. Oh, good. I don't know how an insurance company responds. No, I don't. Yeah, third-party fire and ear bending. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Are there any stories you can tell me attached to the word Nando's voucher? Right, yes, there is, there is one particular story. Um, somebody sent me a text recently following this Nando's voucher thing that happened, and he said, Nando's is the new Bitcoin. I thought it was quite interesting. Um, it started because uh, I do a lot of screen printing and I print onto um, maps and things that I find. Uh, specifically map, the things that I, I'm probably most known for is the fact that I print onto maps. And um, I did a, uh, we did a show down at Jealous called One Man's Trash and one of the big pieces there was a map of, of uh, the US or a map of Africa. There were two or three of them and it had uh, here and there and I used this font called um, Railroad Gothic and I put a nice drop shadow on it. And um, somebody one weekend sent me a, a picture on my Instagram saying, oh, did you do this? Well, I looked at it and it was a map of, of like uh, the US or Africa and it had here, there and everywhere. And it's pretty much, well, I'm gonna, it's not to say exactly the same, but it was very, 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 very similar. 
And uh, I went, no, I didn't do that. And they went, oh, I wonder who did it. And I went, oh, right, it says fucking Savills. And so I went, oh, that's a bit interesting. And I sent Savills a, a message on Instagram saying, can you explain this? But in, in a light-hearted way. And then I started doing a piss-take thing of... Um, uh, then I got back to that person and I said, oh, yeah, I, it, it was Savills. And they apologised for sort of plagiarising my stuff. And he's offered me um, that I can stay in his house in, in uh, Fungarola for two weeks next year. The chairman of Savills has let me stay in his villa in Fungarola. And, uh, and then this person went, really? And I was like, no. And then, and then uh, the following day, I was taking my son to Chelsea Arsenal. And I said, it gets even better. You know, Savills have apologised. I, I mean, I bought tickets myself. So Savills have apologised. And they bought me two tickets to take me and, me and my kid to uh, Chelsea. And the chairman has also given me a selection of his favourite jazz mags. And then I had people saying to me, wait, the chairman of Savills has given you his jazz mags? And I was like, no. It's a joke. And then I sat there and thought, right, well, uh, if they're going to use my stuff, I'm going to do a screen print that says Savile. You know, we sell houses and flats with a Z and Savile's with a Z. And I did it as a print. And I put that on Instagram just saying, look, if, you're going to, if they're going to take my stuff, I'm going to start selling these and see if I can make some money out of them. And then, it, and then I thought, all right, I mean, what's the next level is, I'm just a shitty little screen printer. What about if you use some really good prints, you know, like artists like... Lichtenstein or Rauschenberg or whoever it might be and it just escalated from there and we just started putting Savile's logos on any famous bit of work so there was a, a Lichtenstein one you know the Wham one with the, with the plane blowing up and yeah. I just put instead of Wham it had full ham <laughs> and um, and it just escalated and it yeah. went on and on and on and then suddenly I started having loads of people that follow me on Instagram going what about this one and, I'd, and they'd send it in and I'd go yeah, that's funny, and we'd, I'd post it, and then I kept saying, you know, all I want is Nando's. I don't want any money. It would have been nice if they did, if they said to me, Dave, would you like to do this? Because it's a bit like your stuff. And I would have charged them four or five grand to do it. <clears throat> but they didn't, but I wasn't that pissed off about it. It was more just like, I know how it works. I know how it works in advertising where, you know, I'm working both sides. I'm an artist and I work in advertising, so I know how we get inspired by things. In the same way that I did with you know, um, uh, Anthony Burrell going, yeah, work hard, be nice to people. I put play ping pong on it. Yeah, so I've done it, I'm guilty. But it's like, um, you, can, you can finish it just by buying me chicken. I don't want money. Why, why Nando's as opposed to? Because Nando's is good. Yeah. Nando's is good. Yeah, it's good yeah, chicken. Undeniably. It's good chicken. And I think there's also something very social about Nando's. And I said it has to be a meal for 10. I go away when you buy a meal for ten and one of my prints. And there was nothing. Didn't hear anything from that. And I kept, every time I put a post, I was like, you know, here's another artist that's really good, much better than me, why don't you take his stuff? Mondrian, all the lines, use him. And by the way, I really like, I'm not very good with spice, I prefer, you know, lime and, uh, you know, the, the, the weakest one. But is it okay to have a pudding as well? Because I quite like those little, those little <laughs> Portuguese treats. I still heard nothing. And they got loads and loads of people started following it. And then the funniest thing was that somebody from the drum contacted me and said, oh, what's it all about? And I told him, and he went, how much money are you after? I went, I'm not after money. I just want a Nando's voucher. That's all I want. Please stop making it about money. And, uh, and he, he, he then published that and he put it on the site. And I remember there were like the four top stories at the time. One was WPP were doing something mega. It was like big mega business stories. And there was this little box on the right hand side. I've got it on my phone. 
saying Bonaguidi seeks Nando's voucher in plagiarism spat. And I thought, the fact that I'm up there yeah. on the same page as a big WPP deal is very funny. And then literally the following night, I got a call from somebody. I was sitting in the car dropping my kid off at football and somebody called me up from the Evening Standard and said, what's it all about? And I told him the same story and he said, how much money do you want? I said, I don't want money, I want Nando's chicken. And he went, why? And I said, because I know what it's like. I know, I know I'm, I, I want money, I've got to go to court, I'm, ne- I'm never going to win. They've got big lawyers. It's just a bit of fun. But the thing is, because they've been ignoring me, I'm just going to keep going. And it gets yeah. back to our little German phrase, Ashling, whatever it is, that never give up. Yeah. And I've got plenty of fucking energy. When it comes to having a laugh and doing wind-ups, I'll keep going until the end of the world. We should do a poster, like a sit slice. <laughs> Nando's well, I really want to use that I'm going to get that as a tattoo I think on my <laughs> neck but um, it went on and on and on and he says well what is it you're after and I said I want Nando's voucher for 10 and I want them to buy one of my prints and then he went right I'm going to get in contact with them and it was the agency Isabel and he, he got in contact with them and then literally you know I got a, straight after the following day I got a tech uh, I got an update on my or got uh, tagged to uh, uh, an instant post that they put out saying, who would have ever thought there'd be such a fuss over maps and words? You know, people have been doing it for centuries. I was like, fine. And I went down and did Nando's. I got 10 of us and I posted it to anybody. I said, anybody who wants to come first, come first serve. And then on the day, there were like five people I knew, but then there were a load of, a couple of people came in and were like, is this free chicken? I was like, yeah. <laughs> We all, we all sat down and I didn't really know any. I mean, they were like, some people I knew, some people I didn't. We all just, I just, and the bloke came up and said, what do you want to eat? And I just went, everything. Just get 10 chickens. Yeah. And we all, we scoffed out. And it was like, you know, 250 quid or something. But they paid. Yeah. So it was all done. Very good. But it was, a, it was more a kind of an exercise in having a bit of a laugh. But I, I, I was fascinated by the way that it picked up and it became... So I'm going to turn around and say it went viral, but it was certainly something that was was good fun while it lasted. I mean, it only went on for about two weeks, but I, I was—I've never seen anything like it. I was getting ten things a day that people were sending me, and I was just reposting them, going, yeah. You know, and it just became a real laugh. But I think it was also because it's like, you know, it happens a lot. Agencies rip off other other artists. Like I said, I've done it. Yeah. Um, you know, I apologise profusely to Anthony Burrell. Still don't think he likes me very much as a result of it. But you know, I didn't, I didn't do it to sell anything. Yeah. Never did it to make any money out of it. It was our, it was our motto in the office. Nobody ever made any money out of it. Whereas Savills, they would have sold a whole bunch of houses because uh, of that shit. Dave, what effect do you want your art to have on people? Well, it's, it's quite interesting actually. We, we, um, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. I think because in advertising, as, as a as a creatively trained person in the creative discipline, whatever the fuck that means, we we get kind of you know we we think about who we're talking to, what we want to say, what kind of effect we want to have. You know, our thing is as a creative in advertising, you, you want your work to cut through everybody else's work. You know, ninety percent of the stuff, ninety five percent of the stuff you see out there is absolute dross. How do you stand out? How do you stand for something? Have a message? Do you want a reaction? I am um, so the, these sort of things are ingrained in us as um, as people working for other people, helping provide a service. Now I think it's exactly the same with the art. I mean, it's um, I want I want people to look at my work to have some sort of connection. In a way, I think that's probably why I end up um, printing onto things that I find because you're kind of buying in a little bit of that 
story or that backstory or that reaction. Like maps, the thing I love about maps is when I picked up these blank maps first time around, I was in an antique shop and I just thought, wow, these things are beautiful. You know, they, they would have been drawn by hand back in, you know, the original artwork would have been drawn by hand back in, you know, 1910. Wonderful pieces of, you know, they fold down, they're, on, they're printed on paper onto linen, the colours in them are amazing. But there's also some of the, the evocative nature of a map is like where you're from, where your family came from, where you've been, where things happened. You know, I got touched by Jimmy Savile here, or I lost my virginity there, or I passed my driving test, or I went to college there, or I lived there. You know, there'll be something that gives you an emotional pull to a piece of paper, which is ultimately just a piece of paper. And I, I love that. And, and so now I've got this OCD fucking obsession, which is I like buying old pictures off in, in the internet, you know, going to eBay and buying pictures of just portraits of people. I have no idea who these people are. And you know, I do this thing where I print onto old love letters. <clears throat> and I love the fact that these letters were written by hand you know, to somebody that it, you really can't. It was only for two people. And, but they're, they're suddenly almost uh, obsolete, you know. Now it's like I print XOXO, which is how we now sign off on letters. You know, we don't write anything anymore, and um, I find that I, I really want to create a more an emotive connection. I think it's very difficult when you're an artist to sort of how, how am I going to create something that is, goes viral that people are going to like? Um, and I think a lot of the time it's like maybe don't have to think about that. Do something that you think people might have a deeper connection with that's beyond. Is it just a nice picture? And so, I don't know, I find that the printing onto things that I find that are everyday things that could also be things that are, uh, you know, a map now is just an app on your phone, a letter is a text. And we, as, as we transition into the new world, suddenly some of those old things are beautiful and they're, they're sitting in cupboards or in lofts or under the stairs. And all I try and do is sort of recycle as well. So it's I'm not creating something new, I'm just taking something that's old and making it more interesting so the reaction is is really quite deep you know I want people to sort of go wow you know I love maps or I love that or I love letters or wow just look at that in a different way cool so I don't know I didn't summarise that in two words but it's you know the reaction is really really important and the great thing to want to do is, is to have impact you know have some emotional impact well, I, I, you know what? I don't think a lot of artists go into into the into their careers going, "I want to create work that has an impact." You know, when you look at the great artists, you know, Warhol, whoever it might be, Picasso. You know, they all did something that was wrong. You know, Picasso was criticised for the work he did because everyone was like, "Look like a woman? What's that all about?" You know, she got eyes, two eyes on one side of her face. You know, we've all said that. Um, but they, they had to challenge that to sort of create something that's, that they stood for. And I think, I suppose that's what's always driven me is that, you know, the kind of businesses I've set up. I've never set them up to make money or to sell more. I've set them up to be different and to try and offer an alternative. And uh, I suppose, you know, I'm not classing myself in the same category as any of those great artists, but I think the attitude of trying to do something that's not like everybody else is sometimes not a bad place to start. Three people, dead or alive, that you would love to have to dinner. Oh. Wow. Uh, Andy Warhol. Because I think he's very, very interesting. I don't really know an awful lot about him, but I love his work and I love what he did with the factory and just had interesting people from the music world, from the art world, from culture, all together, which I think is fucking amazing. Um, 
I would love to Amy Winehouse I think would be a really interesting person just because she's a kind of tortured soul amazing creative I was, it, was, it was weird I was printing yesterday <clears throat> and I was in the studio and uh, rehab came on and I just thought fucking hell what an amazing amazing song so personal and her voice and I remember being in Camden once seeing her walking down the street when she was probably on her last legs and she looked like rotten absolutely rotten and it was just a bit it was a bit sad that you see somebody that was so talented have you seen that amazing documentary about her yeah I have an awful lot of respect for anybody that comes out of that with any grace apart from her old mate but the rest of them are just horrible liggers that just kind of latched onto her and tried to make as much money out of, it, out of her as they could. And I just thought it was really sad because she shouldn't have died or shouldn't have been allowed to get that bad. Um, but I kind of found her, I find her fascinating. I mean, I look at just, she did something where she took old style of music and then reappropriated it to make it feel new and I suppose there's lots of similarities and then I, I've always wanted to get that you know there's that woman who can make her eyes pop out you've seen Guinness that? World Records woman she does that thing where she yeah. can literally just go like, <laughs> I just thought if you could get her along to anything yeah, it's going to be a would just be a laugh <laughs> so you get you know, Amy Winehouse Andy Warhol that I think would be they'd probably have lots of conversations and I'd love to listen to them talking and then suddenly you've just got this woman on the side who pops her eyes out. <laughs> when you get bored of each but other. But I, yeah. I bet everybody would suddenly be talking about her. Because, none of, you know, Amy Winehouse is a great singer. Andy Warhol is a great artist, great raconteur, great visionary. But man, if I could make my eyes pop out, I'd fucking... <laughs> so yeah, I think, they, but Amy or Andy might pull it out of the bag. They might be able to do that. I you think never the, know. the conversation would start off really cerebral. <laughs> and then would suddenly just like, how do you do that? Can you imagine being, They'd all be sitting there learning how to do that. Imagine being sort of Andy Warhol or Amy Winehouse and going, well, I'm a fantastically creative artist, but I can you make my eyes pop out. Which one do I do? do? Yeah. And, and the sad <laughs> thing is, is making your eyes pop out would probably make you more money in the modern world than Amy Winehouse who sort of struggled and Andy Warhol who's sort of trying to create these ventures and these things. If you can just do that, then everyone goes, oh, hey, look, it's an Instagram sensation. There you go. And that would all be for Nando's, I assume. So. Obviously. Yeah. Nando's is my dream client. <laughs> Nando's, if you're listening. Yeah. Um, what was the last song you sang to yourself or someone else? I was, it's quite funny, I was riding in... Um, there's a, there's a track called Hot Pants by Alan, I think it's Hawksworth, and it's an old 60s track on a Hammond organ. Uh, there's no words, but I was riding my bike yesterday, and for some reason I wanted to go and do some printing, because my kids' football match got cancelled because the weather was so bad, and there was snow everywhere, and the roads were like lethal, but I thought, hey, well, I'm gonna ride, I'm gonna ride my motorbike. <laughs> up to Print Club, which is only about a mile away from where I live, but a mile in the snow when nobody else has been on it. So I left the house at nine o'clock and it was the most terrified I've ever been. And the only way, I put both my feet down and just open up and the bike was, it was mental, it was horrible. But it was almost like a, I actually thought, is this how I'm gonna die? Is this, is this where I die? Yeah. With a load of stuff in my backpack, all my screen print stuff. And I'm going to end up getting splatted by a bus on Kingsham Road. But the only way I could keep everything, my shit together, was by singing this <laughs> this song. <laughs> and it's uh, when you when you listen to it, 
you're real because there's no words so it just becomes this la 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 and I was just doing that and I thought it was just bizarre right it's bizarre that's a, one of the most extensive answers I've ever had to that yeah. question um, most embarrassing memory from school that you're willing to share the other day uh, where was it I, wrote, I actually wrote it down this is going to sound awful uh, you were at school so it's just yeah no it's at school I was about I was probably about 12 or 13 uh, as a 13 year old boy Currency back in those days was uh, jazz mags, and um, you'd find them everywhere. You'd get on the train and you'd lift up the seats, and there'd be a jazz mag underneath it. And you'd go into a grip box, there'd be a jazzer inside it. It was, it was almost like a kind of, it was almost like the the sort of Airbnb of its time. Yeah. Jazz, jazz B&B. But it was just, pornos were just everywhere. And they weren't, they weren't nasty, they were, they were just like really kind of like lame things like, you know, just booby, booby books. But I remember I used to cut out pages or pictures and then sell them at school. And I remember I got caught. But not only by, but we got caught by a neighbor and I got caught by a school teacher and then I also got caught by a dad uh, of one of my friends buying them. And uh, he, he did this really weird thing. He was really, into, he was a director. He used to shoot Black Beauty. This was his program back in the 70s. And he had, a, he, had, he had this loft and he had a massive train set. And he said, me and his son had got caught buying pornos. And we used to go down to this shop in, in Hammersmith and go, um, my dad's really sick and he wants us to get some stuff for him. And the bloke in the shop was like, really? What stuff's that? And he goes, that he wants 10 Benson hedges, some matches, and one of those mags off the top shelf. And the bloke would go, well, are you sure it's for your dad? And you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So my dad, he's sick, he's too ill to get out of bed. So we've been sent, there were like five boys. We've been sent to go and get it. And you go, you sure? And you go, yeah. <laughs> and then you go, right, that'll be what, what, £2.85. And we'd give it all in coppers. Yeah. <laughs> so he obviously knew it, and then we'd all run down to the park and sit down picking through smoking bags. And uh, this guy, when I, he said, come up and have a look at the train set. And I went up there and, he said, look, there's a little, on the, on the central part of the platform, there's a little newsagent, there's a coffee shop, and there's a newsagent, and there are two little boys at the newsagent, and it were us, but like tiny. And he said, look, and they're buying pornographic magazines. <laughs> <laughs> and I just went, brilliant. Yeah. That's amazing. How do you do that so small? Because this kid had blonde hair, and he said, look, these are the jeans, here's your jeans. And he looked, they, they looked tiny little, you know, scale versions of us. And I was really impressed, and he, he, was, he was doing it as a, you're a disgusting young man. <laughs> it's about as Why? embarrassing as it gets. Yeah. But the embarrassment was that I thought he was being nice. <laughs> no, I mean, it's embarrassing, it was just stupid. Yeah. <clears throat> if you could wake up tomorrow with one superpower. Invisibility. Yeah. Uh, two, well, there's two. Invisibility. To rob banks or to be a, no, be a um <laughs> Well, it would, it's, it's a negative one. It would be to go and smash these, these two people that I really want to smash in the face. Uh, and uh, at the moment, the only way I'm going to be able to do it is when I'm too old to worry about going to jail. Yeah. Which I've still got a long time to go. So if I was invisible, I could do it. 
a little bit more quickly, but they still know it was me. Um, but I suppose insomnia, the power, is that a power? What, never having to sleep? Never having to sleep, yeah. because I could just go down and print and think of stuff all day long. Sleeping, I actually find, I mean, I, I do like, I've got to say, I do like it, but it's sometimes it's a bit of an inconvenience. Yeah, you'll have to look into, like, the polyphasic yeah. sleep schedules. You sleep, like, 30 minutes every six yeah. hours or something. Well, maybe that's it. Poly- yeah. Was it called polyphasic? polyphasic called. See, yeah. that's, that sounds more like a superpower. Yeah. It's polyphasic man <laughs> rather than insomnia man. <laughs> Which doesn't or quite just sound as do lots of crack and yeah, that, well, that's, 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 yeah, that's, <laughs> that's expensive and destructive. But yeah. if if I could, yeah, using up the time I've got left in a in a kind of more positive way would be yeah. good. Could help. Could help with the screen printing. You never know. <laughs> well, well, that's, to, that's the danger of print club. I mean, print club is twenty four hours. You know, yeah. you can go in there twenty four hours a day, yeah. uh, which is good and bad. Yes. Um, yeah. Last one then. Yeah. And then I'll leave you in peace. Um, your house is on fire. Uh-huh. Everyone that you love and all the pets that you love are outside. You've got time to save one thing. What do you save? Uh, blimey. I mean, my, I could do with burning my house down anyway. It's just, there's a lot of shit I've got in there. There's, it's a really weird thing. I, I remember when, when I was in my first job, at TVWA, uh, I was getting paid no money, and um, we were in Covent Garden. And I remember one Christmas going out and buying a T-shirt. Now in those days, you know, T-shirt would cost you like twenty-five quid, and it was a lot of money. You know, like when you're only four grand a year, twenty-five quid for a fucking T-shirt is quite a lot of money. And I bought one, and it was a long-sleeve white T-shirt, and I loved it. It was a little green collar. And the thing is, every time I've moved house, and I've moved house so many times since then, it always ends up staying. Because I go, I don't know whether it's because it's like, it's the first t-shirt I bought with any money. I've still got it. I can't throw it away. And maybe there's a bit of me that, because I'm so fat now, that I just think, is it, maybe I'd love to put it on, but I'd look like a condom. (laughs) So is it one of those things where I just, doing it because it's got an emotional attachment that it's the first thing I ever bought with the salary I had or I don't know but it always comes with me yeah maybe I'll just let my kids wear it but it's uh, well you can just photoshop something and pop it on Instagram and be like I've lost the weight no I've fitted back you don't want yeah maybe I'll do that but you don't want to see that picture (laughs) because it's pitch tip frenzy but it's uh, yeah I don't know I I think that's it would just be as a gesture I'd let everything go I've got yeah. no, very little commit, uh, attachment to anything. I think you know, bikes, cars, nothing. It's just I the same thing with the coat, actually, which will probably stay with me forever. It was the coat I bought when I got a job. And I remember thinking, um, it's pathetic, really. But I remember thinking, I've got my job, and I'm going to go and buy that coat. It was like a pea coat with like a black, not lamb's wool, but yeah. imitation lamb's wool. Yeah, I know the ones. Collar. I know the ones. I remember buying it thinking, I'm going to get the coat, I'm going to go get the train back to Bristol, see my mum and dad, yeah. and arrive in my coat, in my coat with my job, yeah. and that's it, and I'll be made, you know. Yeah, yeah, but, but, you know, you know but, but this sort of gets back to the art thing, is that I think that we have, we build emotion, or something, yeah. you know, something juicy around something. Yeah. I really, I really empathise with that, I mean, it's, uh, you, you want a meaning. Yeah. And now it's... Uh, 
just in my wardrobe just where it will, but you, but where it will probably stay for a long stay. time. Yeah. But one day you'll hand it down like a like one of those Patek Philippe watches. Yeah. You know, Golden sort of, amulet. Yeah, yeah, here yeah. my son. Have <laughs> my coat. Um, Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank pleasure. you so Thank much you. Uh, for giving me so much of your time. And there's That's loads of useful stuff in there. So cool. thanks very much. Cool, man. Nice one.